Hello, friends. Hello, good day, and thanks for tuning in for another one of my Merge Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. I'm excited to get into the story today, and hopefully, uh, some of you are happy to hear it. Um, uh, we'll give it a minute or two for everyone to pop in, and then we'll do a quick, brief recap on where everybody was. Uh, a little bit more of a recap this time than normal, since everybody was kind of separate, but we'll uh, we'll get into all that. Um, as always, I will ask if you're hanging out with me and you have yourself a good time today, it would be awesome if sometime through the stream you would mind clicking that like button. Uh, and if you're finding this channel for the first time, it would be awesome if you'd subscribe so you can come back and hang out with us more often. Um, so yeah. Uh, hey, Teresa and Jim slash Smashley, hopefully is there as well. Uh, good day and welcome. Uh, I've spent the last hour reading back over the story, familiarizing myself. Oh, off to nephews. Oh, well, I hope you have a good time. <laughs> your nephews. Thanks for stopping by, though. Oh, confirmation. Right. I'm going to be mentioning that now. Very nice. Um, I've been familiarizing myself with, again, the tale where we're going on. Um, this section was, as I mentioned last time, was designed to give the characters each their own little bit of a solo story. Um, since everybody had always been in pairs or the group of four or, or even bigger, um, I wanted to give him a bit of... Uh, a bit of a chance to shine on their own with maybe some of their NPCs. Teresa says, love him, but rather hear Merge <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> I can picture her in the back with the earbud in. No one notices. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Teresa. Um, so we'll, uh, I'll jump in on the recap here. So uh, last week's episode uh, was the first of this new chapter, this overall storyline. Uh, for our main heroes, um, Dandy and Michael had been off traveling for many months since he had been saved in the pre previous storyline. He and Dandy had gone to uh, New Light, um, New Light's Hope, as I believe. I was saying it wrong the other day. It's New Light's Hope is the name of the place. Uh, but New Light's Hope is where the uh, Knights of the Light and where his uncle Gunther runs them. Gunder. Gunder, not Gunther. Um, and so they'd gone with them. Dandy got to meet him, and she was, of course, ecstatic that he, she was. Well, it's, it's not common for a human and a kender to be together. Um, and the knights, being as rigid as they are, she was very, very worried. But uh, Michael's uncle was totally happy, no problem at all. It was that was awesome. So they've been traveling around, just going to different places, doing their little undead hunting, but more going around and visiting places that uh, they maybe never really got to see together. Um, and they were heading over to. Uh, the Kingdom of Firemoon to take a look there, you know, and stop by and see, see King Firemoon. Uh, when they arrived there, uh, they got to hang out with some of the traditional NPCs. Some of them weren't there, but many of them were. Uh, they got to meet, of course, King Firemoon and his wife, Michelle, and they got to meet his new son, Deacon, um, who was the prince and only child of theirs at this point. Hello, Countress Koo. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming by. Um, so they were hanging out there. Um, I'm going to kind of tell her snippet before I go into each character. So I was bouncing back and forth, but I'm going to tell a full snippet. She was hanging out there, and they are hanging out with, uh, Thickaway Tricklebush, the Kender and ally of Rafe. Um, 
and both of them being incredibly thieved, uh, good thieves, good, skilled thieves, I should say, uh, Thickaway and Dandy, they very quickly realized that someone was watching them and been trailing them for a while. They got the person's attention, talked to him about it, and he turned out he was a messenger from Dandy's old uh, ally, One-Eye, who was the Thieves' Guild leader in Paxiwal. Um, there had been a, there was an ongoing civil war between two Thieves' Guilds in the city, and he had asked for her help and asked to meet her at a place called Whispering Hills. Uh, no one knew what that was, so... Barrick was like, okay, well, I guess that's what we're going to do. So her and Michael made their way to Paxiwal to find out where Spring Hills was. Found out it was a small mining community near the mountains, uh, not very far from the west of Paxiwal. Small town kind of stuck to itself. And they headed there and had just arrived there uh, when we ended the story. Artemis, um, splitting her time between being a spiritual leader of the kingdom and a new mother, um, Raising Seraph, Draven there, spent some time at Draven's cabin. He has a little, him and uh, Tevin have their own little place outside of the city. A good couple, like, days travel would be normal. A ways out. And uh, she was mostly kind of hanging out there at the temple and doing temple-y things. Uh, there had been word that there may be some type of issue uh, where some people had gotten sick in a nearby town. Um... They kind of keep an eye on it, but then they received a message soon after that it was getting worse. Now another town was having a sickness. This was a concern, because that's thing they wanted some type of plague thing to sweep through the land. The Kingdom of Serenity had been very um, plentiful, profitable. I honestly say it, it's, it's been very robust since uh, it had really kind of become what it was. They did not want something in there messing with that. So Miyasha, who is uh, an incredibly tall human female, well over seven feet. She's from a race of humans that are very tall. And she's also a bit of a curmudgeon. Uh, she's Artemis's right hand, and uh, she decided to travel to uh, one of the towns to look in at herself, escorted by some of the Holy Templar knights, as well as uh, Quan, one of Mercy's knights. Uh, Mercy received a message that there was uh, a garrison of Knights of the Light that were coming her direction, and had asked to speak with her. Uh, so they prepped for that because they're, they're not enemies or anything. They're, real, they're pretty much allies, but uh, a little bit of uh, nervousness. Mercy doesn't want them coming and trying to muscle their way in kind of thing. But was pleasantly surprised when they show up and found out the head of the entire group uh, was her father that she had not seen in many years, uh, who was now the third in command of the entire Knights of the Light. Um, there, Mercy and he were, were from a world that weren't didn't have the Knights of the Light per se, but had Knights much along the same line. Uh, and he had joined up with the Knights of the Light and really bumped up in uh, rank. So he was hanging out there with them. It was very exciting. Uh, it was a very fun times. And during that, uh, hanging out and talking and seeing what was going on, cut there or later, there's a message comes back that Miyasha has fallen into a coma and had fallen ill. And more and more people were getting sick. Um... If something is strong enough to get Miyasha, not many other people there that can take care of it except for Artemis herself. So Artemis decided that she was going there. Um, of course, the world wants her protected. Lucas, of course, wants to go. She's like, no, you need to stay here and take care of my son. You're in charge of protecting him when I'm not around. So she uh, went with... Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, 
a group of the, part of the garrison of the Knights of the Light had offered to go as well. Uh, they were led by two of the Knights, Sir Dante and Sir Snyder. Uh, Sir Dante being the senior of the two and the one that she dealt with the most. Uh, was also escorted by Seamus and also by Weston, who is a paladin uh, who has been living at Artemis' temple for a while now. Uh, very Brad Pitt, young, gorgeous-looking guy, very charismatic, but uh, very, very nice and capable guy. Um, and as a paladin, quite powerful. So he went along as well. Uh, was along with one of Seamus, which is one of Mercy's knights. So a bunch of Templars, a bunch of Seamus's. Guards uh, or, or soldiers from Mercy, and then the Knights of the Light. So three groups of people rolling rolling into here, protecting Artemis, uh, and they made it into town where Quan wasn't letting anybody see uh, Miasha except for like the few clerics that he was familiar with. They show up, they get inside, and and, and true enough, she's in a coma. She looks bad. She, her symptoms are different than what everybody else's are, and that's a that's a confusing point. That's kind of where we left off with her. And then uh, Mercy, hanging out with her dad, mostly. Um, she was, had received, I think she had received, I think I told you guys this, she received a message to go to the old mine, to go to the mines. Please let me know if we talked about that. She was going to check in on the mines to the west, uh, towards the border guard area, uh, between these lands and the lands of Oramon. Uh, and so her father was going to go along with her in that. And they were prepping to go to do that. Well, the rest of people were going the other way. And the last group is Darsh, who had been living in Kronear, way far away from all of this. Um, his new ship was about ready to sail, the Chimera, which is one of the largest ships and the first of its design, designed by both humans, elves, and minotaurs, uh, specialists. Uh, it has a couple cool features I haven't told you guys about yet that I'm excited about. And uh, they're waiting on the right his main ship, the Morgenstern, to show up. And when it did, it showed up late and it had been heavily damaged. Turned out that there had been a pirate attack on Darstopia, his islands. And uh, several ships' lives have been lost, damage to the island, as well as ships. And then they got here as soon as they could. Uh, his, Darsh's cousin Rokar, had been seriously injured. Not killed, but seriously injured. Um, in the excursion, whatever it is. Um, and Darsh, of course, gets everybody ready. And uh, they're going to hop on the Chimera and head that direction and find out it, how everybody is there. And then he wants to find the pirates. So Darsh is very unhappy. The first issues they've had on Darstopia where they've had any type of animosity in that area, and he was not going to let that stand. Um, so that's kind of where everybody was. The only other point of importance I want to mention is in the middle of all of that, one night, everybody had nightmares. You don't remember the nightmares? They had a bad dreams. Was that important? Was it the same night? No, but there were nights where everybody had nightmares. And once I mentioned that, I started keeping track of how many days it had been since that. And I was being quite clear with the fact that it had been this many days. It had been this many days. So, I mean, I think it was quite clear to you that that was important. Just as I, it was clear to the players back in the day that I was obviously keeping track of it for a specific reason. But at that point where everybody had the nightmares, that's when I told everybody, that's where all the stories became synced. So, you know, Darsh's stories might have, that I told may have taken place over two weeks. Mercy's might have been over a week. Artemis is over a week. And Dandy's over three weeks. But it was at that night when all of those storylines became in sync. Not Backstreet Boys. That's a different band. 
Chucky Milk. So, that brings us to where we are. Artemis had arrived, and so on. And uh, that's where we're going to start with, I believe. I, I take that back, I'm full of lies. We're going to start with Dandy, who had just made it to the town formerly known as Whispering Hills. Uh, it had taken him a few days to get there, even though it wasn't that long, because they were being very careful uh, to not... They thought A couple times they thought they were being followed, so they were trying not to be obviously going that way. Um... Or whoever was, if somebody was following them, in fact, and Dandy wasn't quite sure, but if they were, they were much more talented than the person who'd been tracking them back in Firemoon. Like, that guy might as well have had a neon sign over his head, Dandy thought, even though she didn't quite know what a neon sign was. Hmm, felt that was important. But they take their time, and they make their way around uh, very widely and whoopy and try to lose people uh, until they finally make it to the town. They arrive late in the afternoon. Um... Now, this is right at the base of what are known at this point as the Barrier Mountains. So, um, I've talked about how the map of the Southern Kingdoms work. Right? We know that there's a city right here. This is the city of Paxual, right? And that I'm doing this backwards for me, but right for you. And then we go... No, that wouldn't be right for you. Okay, to the, <laughs> to the west of that is a huge mountain that go up or down, up and down. Paxwell's nearly on the edge of it. On the other side of that is Thormin, another one of their kingdoms uh, that is allied with them. But to get around the mountains, you either have to go by water or you have to go way up north and back around again because they're, they're incredibly steep mountains. They're very jagged. Again, it's very much like, almost like spikes Xing, growing up and crisscrossing sharp and stuff. And uh, But they're also pretty plentiful with decent quality... Um, or basic oil, like not talking gold, but, you know, like iron and coal, things that people might need. So uh, it's been a bit of a boon to help Paxiwell rebuild uh, since they are now a city on the edge of an ocean where no ocean existed uh, when the uh, merge happened. So Dandy and, then finally, Dandy and Michael finally make it there. Um, they have the, uh, he has his staff all wrapped up in leather. Uh, so it kind of just looks like a big long bedroll or two long bedrolls on his back. It could be just like a, a quarter staff or something wrapped in. Uh, and they're dressed in regular clothes. They're not wearing their uh, black leather undead hunting. And, and they don't always wear that anyways unless they specifically think there's a reason to. Michael usually does, but Dandy won't. Dandy's in her bright colored clothes and Michael's wearing what he, his regular civilian clothes because... Um, there's a concern that they might be known. Somebody might be looking for them. And his magical spear, Menandra, uh, is kind of a giveaway. So keeping it wrapped up um, in a blanket and such, uh, so as he's carrying it, is, is something he very commonly does when they need to blend in. He'll mix it with sticks and stuff and kind of put them all on his back so it looks like he's carrying a bunch of old, maybe lumber or something, or sticks for the fire, things like that nature. Um, uh, that, that's, that's a common... Uh, uh, Disguise Dandy's helped disguise him because Dandy's really good at disguising. Uh, it's, it's Dandy very often will disguise herself as an elven child if there's any chance of that, and she pulls that off really well, um, and has been used in many times. But they finally make it to this town, and at first glance, it looks like most other small towns they visited. The buildings are in decent repair, though older looking than they normally see. There are very few people walking the streets, and those that do move with purposeful speed. Not like meandering or just hanging out. They're going somewhere. They're getting to where they're going. 
Dandy and Michael walking into the town register a quick look, but the citizens move on quickly down um, into the hilly streets. Because again, it's on the base of a mountain, so it's a, it's, it's a very rolly, hilly kind of area. It's not really flat. Um, but, you know, people kind of notice one, but they're not really, you know, getting a lot of attention. Um, which usually means this is from a world where they don't, that, people don't know what Kender are, because Kender usually, hide your purse, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but in this situation, it's kind of not really paying any attention to them. Um, immediately, the young lady who plays Dandy started asking me a list of questions, because she had been thinking about this all week before we got into this play. We, you know, it's like we are, this is where we started that time as well. And she was ready with some questions and started asking me questions. How many buildings? What are they made of? Do the buildings all look the same? Uh, I mentioned most of the buildings are older looking, but definitely there's a few that look newer that have probably been built post-merge using more um, materials found after the merge. And some of them have been there much longer because this was a lumber town, but the woods that were all around it is now where the mountains are. So they don't have the same type of trees that they were chopping down before. So the excuse me, wood and such would be you know, different color, different type of trees. <laughs> She also asked me to describe some of the people uh, that I, she saw on the street. And I didn't have, even random people, I started describing what they looked like, what they dressed. And very quickly she made the comment, I'm, you're only saying humans. I said, that's correct. You only see humans here. No other races. She immediately jotted that down. And I was very, very happy of her that she'd found that. I really wasn't expecting her to notice that right out the bat. But yes, all they see are humans in this town. Uh, especially with it being a mining town, you'd expect a few dwarves or even gnomes kicking around. But at this point, on the streets and moving, all they see are humans. Um, and there's only one inn in town, and it's known as the Silver Vein. And when they get there, the sign of the name of it, the Silver Vein, is obviously very, very new. Um, knowing the history, this used to be a lumber town, and now it's a mining town. Um, Danny and Michael kind of come to the guess that it's very likely that they renamed it something more minor-like, where it was probably something more lumber-like, you know, like the split tree or something like that beforehand. They probably changed the name of the inn to more match the, the town. So that was one of the newer things they saw was that sign. And they talked about it with me and through just descriptions, and that was the, what they came up with based on what they saw. Uh, so they, they go on inside, and... Uh, Let's see, the Silver Vein Inn itself is one of the newest-looking buildings in the entire town. Uh, it's a large two-story structure, and upon entering it, they find themselves in a very comfortable common room. Uh, the inn is warm and inviting, and behind a wooden desk is a portly middle-aged woman who smiles at you as you enter. Welcome to the Silver Vein, she says warmly. And she introduced herself as Ira Locarno. Um, tells that her and her husband are the owners... Um, and ask him, what brings you to town? What can we help you with? And the standard conversation happens. Oh, what brings you to town? Would you like a room? Do you need a meal? We'd love a room. How much does it cost? And I have down here listed how much food are, whether you want to share a common room, because most inns in these, these type of situations will have a room where you get a cot. It's like a bunk room where a bunch of people are. And if you want a private room, you're paying for more money. Uh, and they always get the, the private room, um, just in case they want to be sneaky. Um, I mean, not sneaky, like sneak in and out, stuff like that. Uh, but they get themselves some food, some beverages, hang out, uh, and start saying, oh, yeah, they're looking for work. 
looking to settle down. They heard that the town was now a mining town. Maybe there'd be some work needed at the mines. Uh, Michael, well, being a small dude, has some experience with stuff like that. Um, and Dandy plies off that she's a tailor. Because uh, Dandy actually has sewing as one of her skills. They Everybody early on thought it would be cool for them to all take a, a side skill that would be just a thing that they happened to know that wasn't real combat-oriented or something like that. And Dandy took sewing. So a lot of times she repaired her own clothes, and she was okay at it. Uh, so she could, sometimes she would, when she was at places, markets, uh, she was like, are there cool silks? Are there cool cloths? And she would collect some of that stuff to make some of her own clothes, which is a, a skill that she used throughout the storylines. All right, Teresa, I will do so. And I hope your uh, adventure is as exciting. <laughs> Have yourself a good time. And congrats to you and your family again. I will take that as a moment to fill up my chalky milk. Oops, got chalky milk up. Almost got it on my mouse. Whew, right next to it. Dangerous city. Uh, so uh, they're kind of hanging out and chatting and such. Um, let's see. And uh, they... After they get told the room, they go up to the room, they're shown where it is. It's a nice room. Um, not real big, but it has a nice sized bed. It's got its own private little hearth. There's a good little, not all in rooms do, but it's got a, a nice little fireplace in there. They're on the ground level, or second level, I'm sorry. But it's still a nice fireplace and uh, spacious. Looking around, uh, they notice that the shutters and such on the window are open, but that the windows appear to be. Uh, what's I'm looking for? Hmm. The windows have bars and shutters. Well, not uncommon for them to come across an inn with bars and shutters. Uh, not normally in small towns. You know what I mean? Bigger towns and cities and kingdoms where thieves guilds and or towns where you know are a little bit larger and you have to worry about that kind of element. Small towns, not so much. But again, if it's uh, enough people are coming through, maybe they've had a little problems. Not completely out of the way, but something they made note of. After settling in, they uh, decided to go down and get uh, something to eat and drink down at the the bar area of the inn. Uh, so when they get down there, they find the bar is warm and bright, giving a very friendly atmosphere. Uh, though it is early evening, uh, there are already a few patrons in there. Most sit alone or in small groups. Uh, conversations low, but everyone stops and stares at Dandy and Michael when they for, for a moment when they first come in. It's kind of like a, who's this guy? Who's this? And then after a minute after, they're like, eh. And they get back to their conversations. Uh, they don't really uh, pay too much attention. But everybody stops, you know, which is kind of common. You know, ooh, Kender, maybe. What is that? You know. Welcome, friends. Come here and have a seat. A large gentleman. <laughs> large as in weight, not in height. Large gentleman says, uh, come, come. And he shows him to a table. He introduces himself as Alejandro. And Alejandro is uh, the owner, with his wife, of this uh, facility. Also introduces a young barmaid named Sonia, um, who's a local girl that works there, and says, uh, Sonia, if you need anything while you're staying here, I'll get myself or my wife, or Sonia can help you out when she's here throughout the day. She returns to her home at night, that kind of a thing. Uh, and they just start kind of having a chat. Um, and this happens a lot. In, in the story where they get to a new town and I'm the bartender or I'm the sheriff and they're asking me questions. We're having a conversation and I'm asking them the same type of questions where they usually have some type of pre-rehearsed story to give. Um, and in this one, we're looking to settle down. Um, 
where we're from, it's not well accepted that we're married, and so we're looking for a place a little bit more accepting, and so on and so forth. Well, that's going on. The story that they hear is that uh, while they were mostly uh, uh, lumber beforehand, they did just the tiniest bit of mining. Um, but after the merge, there were no trees. It, they, every, the whole town converted into basically a mining town. Um, and while it was small and isolated uh, somewhat now, it was very isolated before the merge. It was a small town, days and days travel from everywhere else. And when they did sell lumber to the closest, uh, to, they would take it to an area where it would be bought on the edge of a great river. And then people who bought it had barges and would take it up river to the different places, the mills and stuff to sell it. So um, they really just sold it to the middleman at like a standard pricing kind of thing. Uh, so the town, while it was small, it made enough money to make do. Uh, they had their own, there were of course always some small farms. Every town has a few small farms um, for food and things. So they got by. Um, so now they're here, they're a little bit closer to bigger cities. That became a little bit of a culture shock to them. Um, just trying to adjust to it. Um, says that uh, this, he and his wife had just moved here to the town just a year or two before the merge and had just started to build the, and had just finished building the inn. Um, the town had uh, been doing okay um, and they were looking for places that could use something of nature and there really wasn't an inn in the area. The, the old inn had kind of burned down in a fire a few months earlier and they decided to jump in. Um, now, they do advise them that at night to keep the, the window shutters closed because the city does have a bat issue. There are a lot of pockets and caves while they're mining. It's created a lot of caves that's attracted a lot of that type of nightlife. And so there is a bit of a bat issue in town. Um, so they recommend keeping your windows closed at night just so that you don't wake up with bats in your room. Um, so they're hanging out and uh, everything's going on and after a while, they start chatting. Yeah, we had a friend that was supposed to come through here. He's actually recommended the area. He's a long time guy. Well, I haven't seen him in a while. Maybe, we were always wondering if he came through here. It'd be nice to see him again. I'm like, oh, really? You know a local? What's his name? He goes, oh, he's, uh, you know, he's kind of, and he's kind of go bounce off names. You definitely would know him. He wears an eye patch. He's got one eye. Um, and as he says that, the whole place kind of goes quiet. No one really looks, but the whole place... There's an instantaneous quiet when they mention a one-eyed guy. Alejandro's like, uh, no, no, I, I haven't seen anybody come through here matching that description. <laughs> Somebody like that would stand out, but no, I haven't seen anybody come through with one eye or anything like that, no. And immediately, Dandy can tell he was very nervous. He was trying to be calm and cool, but he obviously was nervous answering that question. Um, and they're like, okay, okay. And he says, well, if you excuse me, I tend to some of the other bars folks and say hi. But if you need anything, give it to myself or Sonia and such. And Danny and Michael kind of stay there and they're having a conversation, but they're doing their best to have a dummy conversation. Uh, it's something that they had practiced. They, and Danny comes me, is this something we can do? Or we practice a dummy conversation where we're used to talking about something Complete, like, this their story is sewing. I got some silk. Maybe we can find a place that needs, you know, maybe somebody here could use some patching of clothes. Yeah, I don't see if anybody's hiring miners and that kind of stuff. We're, like, their plans for the next day. But they're so used to saying it that while it's coming out, they're really focusing on the conversations and people's reactions to them around them. Um, and I said, yeah. I said, that's fine. If you guys want to practice that, you want to say that's something you guys work on, um, you know, there may be times 
where you'll have to roll, you know, depending on the situation. But sometimes, you, you know, you just naturally fine at it. I think that would be okay. So that was something that her and Michael had kind of had. She'd come at me with, you know, this is something we'd like to practice. It's not like it's a given gift. We're not saying we're automatically great at it. But this is something that we would like to practice and learn between adventures and such to try to use. And I was excited by that. I liked that when my, my my players would come to me with new ideas to expand their character's abilities. And not like in a super-powered way. You know, it's like, this is something feasibly they could do. We want to have regular backstories because sometimes we're undercover in undead areas or whatever the case is. Um, and I was really excited that they wanted that idea. So I was like, totally, yeah, we can work that out. Um... So they hang out for most of the evening, have a bite to eat, get a drink, you know, have a few drinks. They have a couple bottles of wine. They're very careful to not drink much of it. This may act like they're drinking a little more than they were actually drinking. So that way, you know, ha, 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 laughing and stuff. But they're saying a little bit more uh, straight wine. Um, but that gets late in the evening and a lot of the people have head out. Danny and Michael genuinely getting tired. Don't think they're really going to pick up much. Just from sitting there and listening, they really hadn't heard much other than people complaining about, you know, having to work in the mine, that everybody worked in the mine. Man, I wish I didn't have to work in the mine, stuff like that. Um, and uh, But there's still a few patients there. They decide they're going to go up to the room. And as they gather up their stuff and they grab their bottles of wine, because, I mean, you buy a bottle of wine, you take it with you. You know what I mean? You just leave it sitting on the table. Take it with you back to your room, where a lot of times they can drink it more if they want, or pour some out so it looks like they drank more, that kind of thing. They had no fear of being poisoned or anything like that. There was no reason for that. But they were just trying to make sure they stayed level-headed and didn't get too tipsy. But as they're heading towards their room, they happen to pass Sonia, who just kind of steps in Dandy's way. And Dandy stops for just a second. And Sandy, Sandra, uh, ugh, Sonia leans in and says, You should leave. Leave tonight. Leave as quickly as you can. Don't stay the night. And Dandy turns and is about to say, What do you mean? And Alejandro goes, son, we've got these gentlemen a drink over here. A little bit firm, a little bit irritated sounding. Sonia's like, uh, yes, sir. And looks at them like, hmm. And then she goes off to do what they say. Danny and Michael go back to their room. A little concerned because this young lady managed to slip the message of, you really should leave. And not in a threatening, we don't like you kind of way, but in a, this is not safe, you need to get out of here. Um, which kind of throws everything off that they'd been thinking that day. Because other than Alejandro being a little bit nervous about the one-eye comment, it seemed like a normal town. There weren't a lot of other things. Uh, everybody being human isn't a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's not. It's something that can be known in a world where there's not everybody's human. It could mean there could be some maybe racism type issue there, people non-liking other races only want humans or something of that nature. But they didn't get that feel from people. Nobody seemed negative to Dandy, even in the least. No second looks because of what she was. More concerned, no one gave a name at all until she mentioned something about one eye. And then things popped out. So overall, other than that one thing, everything seemed like pretty normal. But then to get that kind of dour warning last minute as they're about to head up to their room, that kind of threw a lot of that in the, in the heap like, what are we missing? What Did we miss anything? What's going on? So they head back up to their room. At this point, we're going to take a little switch over to uh, Darsh Fohammer. It takes three days for the Chimera to reach Darshtopia, which for the record 
Its official's name was Zalshad Anar, is the name of the island in particular, his primary one. I don't know what that meant. I didn't pick it. She did. Um, but the whole area is just mostly, all the islands and stuff, became known as Darstopia. Uh, and after a while, what first started as just a funny nickname for it, literally became the name of it. At that point, it just became, no, that, that people just know it as Darstopia. That's Darsh's islands. And while the islands have individual names, Darstopia is just the name of his island, his four islands. So that kind of stayed there. So it took three days for their new ship, the Chimera, on its maiden voyage to reach Zelshadanar. Darsh is on deck with Dorm and Gaskic when Nathalian's voice cries out, Ships ahoy! Now this is as they're approaching the island. They can see the island in the distance, you know, a little bit. It's, it's, it's slightly hilly and mountainy, but not real bad. Um, everyone starts looking, because, you know, Nathalian, their lookout, super great eyesight. That's why he's a lookout. He's way up high. Um... They take a look. They can see that there are two unusual ships docked at the pier. I say unusual because, well, Darsh has some ship ships. There's the Morgenstern. Now there's the Chimera. The Miss Dandelion helps them out sometimes when that's Dandy's ship that used to be Darsh's. Um, Darsh has a bunch of really small vessels, several of them, probably four or five, that could never handle a real sea voyage without being escorted by one of the big ships. Uh, but they're meant to just go back and forth through the islands. Because you can pretty much see the islands from each other, or almost, you know, you're, you're in the water 10, 15 minutes, and then you'll see the islands. They're not super far apart. Even though the water does get pretty deep between them, surprisingly. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to give that little bit of a description of the area. Because it might matter later. It might not. So... As they rush forward to the edge of the deck, Darsh and, and friends, uh, they see that the two docks, one is clearly a Kronayar merchant vessel. So it's a Minotaur merchant vessel. It's flying the flags of Kronayar as well as the flags of a specific merchant that Darsh is familiar with. The other one appears to be a human vessel um, that looks to have sustained some pretty heavy damage as well. Now, Dorum... Darsh's right-hand man begins yelling out orders, and the crew prepares for battle. They're not saying these things are going to have to fight them, but they're not taking any chances, right? They're saying no chance. With the events of the last week and the being attacked here last time, and they not knowing the ships, they don't take any chances. Everyone's armed and ready, and the Chimera pulls into port. It literally dwarfs the other ship. You have to understand the Chimera, <laughs> comparatively, would be like. Pulling up in a, a, a like a, what are they called? Those the uh, the air, the ships we have the bow ships with the planes on them, the aircraft carrier. Like it's a massive ship compared to regular ships, um, and it's faster. It's built that way on purpose. Not only does it have four masts instead of uh, the standard three for a large ship, it has um, its design itself is meant to cut through the water. And we talked about it. There's reasons like this that'll become more apparent. But the the ship had specific reasons for why it was as fast as it was. And sturdy. So they, uh, let's see. As they pull into port, they see that uh, Quinton, who happens to be the uh, harbor master for the primary island, is speaking with a minotaur and a human on the docks. And it appears that they're standing there waiting for Darsh's ship to pull up. You know, the fact that they're just having a conversation kind of puts Darsh's ship in. He's obviously not a problem then. Quentin would not be sitting there, <laughs> just chilling with these people if they were under attack. 
So they pull up, and of course, uh, once they tie off and such, this is the first time the ship has been to Darstovia, and a lot of the people are coming out of the building and stuff to take a look at it, because no one's seen a vessel quite like it before. Darsh and Dorum uh, make their way off. Dorum, Dorum passes it over to a second in command, who uh, I don't remember her name right now off the top of my head, but normally it would be uh, Rokar, but he's still injured. He did not come with them. He is still back on Darstopia because of his injuries from the first battle. So as he... They they dis, dismark, and they get down. Um, they're introduced to the... Quentin introduces... Who's also a mentor. Introduces them to the other minotaur and the, the, the human. The human is uh, Captain Castillo of the... Uh, Castillo Sunbear of the Will-O-Wisp. So the human ship is known as the Will-O-Wisp. Um, they explain that it was a ship that was en route to Darstopia. Law ships come to Darstopia. Look into business, want to trade or provide goods. Sometimes they'll show up, hey, hi, we're here, we have a whole thing of lumber. You want to buy it? Everybody knows Darsh is building on this island a lot. Homes, warehouses, things of that nature. So a lot of people will show up here looking for work looking to maybe start a business. Uh, much like in Serenity, Darsh has land that he will, in his situation, he doesn't sell out, but he, like, leases out. He'll say, oh, yeah, you want to build something here? That's fine. You know, I'll lease you this land kind of thing. Um, they were on the route to Darstopia when they were attacked by pirates. This does not make Darsh happy. This, this, that means that's another pirate attack close to his waters on a human ship this time. They were in serious trouble and looked like they'd be sunk by... It was, a, it was just uh, one other pirate ship. When Captain Greer of the Titan's Grip arrived. That's the Minotaur ship. They were on their way to Arjuel. You know, mar- there, it was a merchant ship, but merchant ships, when it comes to Minotaur, are still pretty heavily go- you know, armored and armed. They're carrying goods. They're ready to defend them. Um, and as they're passing, th- pa- they saw the ships in the distance, recognized Castillo's ship seems that he and Captain Greer had drunk, had drinks together a couple in a couple different ports now. And uh, the mentor kind of view, viewed him as, he liked to talk about him, he had a human friend. I have a human friend who's a captain, you know. And you're trying to, to look like blend in kind of thing. Like, uh, he sees his human friends in trouble. Of course, the Minotaur's charged in to help. Um, as soon as the Minotaur ship arrived, the pirate ship fled. Um, uh they were not heading here originally, but uh, this being the closest port, Darstopia, where they were at the time, uh, they escorted the Will of the Wisp here for fear of its damage being, you know, not being able to get there, and of course they could try to tow it some, you know, uh, but it managed to get here, and they arrived. Captain Castillo, if you'll remember, the human, says that uh, as it was, the battle wouldn't have lasted, and they would have never lasted as long as they had, had it not been for the ambassador on board. I really liked saying that. Because that was something totally unexpected. Because um, he's like, <laughs> first place Darsh is like, hmm? Ambassador? Ambassador who? You know? <laughs> and that's exactly what, what she said. She looks at me, she goes, the only lady playing goes, Ambassador who? And funny enough, I had the answer. That would be me, son of Fohammer, came a very deep voice. Turning to the will of the wisp, the human ship, everyone kind of stares in amazement. Walking down the creaking gangplank was one of the biggest minotaurs any of them had ever seen. 
He was regally dressed with a long flowing cape. But what was most incredible was his left arm. From the elbow down was a metal arm forged of brightly polished steel, ending in a mighty fist. On his chest he wore a familiar crest of a quarter moon on fire. It has been a long time, friend Darsh, says Tabork. Now, some of you may know, may not know, Tabork is the best friend of Rafe Firemoon and uh, ran the Kingdom of Firemoon while Rafe was away. A very loyal person. Oh, MT says, hey, everyone, Scott here, going to start from the beginning, though. <laughs> Understandable. Not a worry. Thanks for popping by. But Tabork, most of the, of Rafe's inner crew have the rank of, even even Thickaway, Trickabush, the Kender, have the rank of ambassador and are often, uh, have the authority to speak on Fire Moon's behalf. You know, Tabork walks in and says, the Kingdom of Fireborn is going to support you in this battle. Rafe's going to do that because he's like, I tr if you're saying that, you know that there's a reason we should be. I'm not going to question it. Um, maybe, maybe Thickaway, but everybody else, he's not going to question it. Darsh is delighted to see Tabork. Hasn't seen him in several years at this point. Shakes his hands. Now, nobody really says anything. He doesn't bring it up. But the last time Darsh saw Tabork, he did not have an arm. Starting at the elbow on uh, his left hand. I believe it was his left hand. Yes. On his left hand. Um, and now he has this metal arm there. Um, so yes, uh, asks what, what, what was going on? What brings you here? Hello, dark warrior going well. Thank you. Just telling my tale. <laughs> Thanks for coming by. Debork tells Darsh that, uh, things have been peaceful in the kingdom of fire moon the last year or two without any real issues. Debork had decided to take a little personal time himself and make a visit to Kronear to see if maybe any of his family had come through the merge and be there as well. Darsh found his cousin Rokar there. I mean, Tabork's a lot of Minotaur would, uh, hearing there's a Minotaur kingdom, would go beeline right to it, right? Because that's their people. That's where you go. Tabork's like, I would be interested to know if anyone I know survived as well. So I, uh, he, I, Tabork decided I was going to take that trip over there. Um, he'd heard of Darshtopia, of course, and decided that he was going to go there first. And he hired the Will of the Whiffs to bring them there. Uh, which, you know, you think just renting a whole ship for one dude to travel, Tabork has, and, and the King of Fire Moon has immense wealth. Uh, so he paid well to be taken here without any uh, real slack. Um, he was also hoping that once he got here, that maybe Darsh, he could travel with Darsh into Kroniar. He knows Darsh's kind of relative rank there now. He's friends with Darsh. Darsh is good with Fire Moon. Him being an ambassador of a completely different kingdom. Um, having Darsh bring him in probably would look a lot better. You know, what I mean? you know what I mean? An ally of the kingdom escorting the ambassador in, instead of some random human ship he paid to bring him in. Look a little bit better. Um, so there's that. Uh, he arrived at Darsh is like, of course, yes. As soon as we're, you're definitely welcome to come with us and we'll, we'll take you in there should we need to. Or take you there. The Will of the Wisp, of course, like I said, has a lot of damage. It's going to be probably several weeks before it's really repaired enough. Um, Darsh offers 
room and such for the crew. You're welcome to stay here. My people will help you repair because Darsh has a rough ship repair is one of the things he would have had thrown up there really, really quickly with all the little boats that he has. He's going to need a place to fix them. So they have the stuff that they're going to need to fix the boat, but, you know, they don't have a lot of huge teams for it. It's going to take a little bit of time. Um, and then once it's repaired, it's going to head back to RUL. Um, the Titans group is going to continue on to RUL immediately, which is where it was going. It was kind of headed that way. Uh, but Captain Greer mentions that He's concerned. Originally, they were going to go to RUL, but now he's concerned. Do, should I go back? Should I instead return to Kronair and let the Emperor know? Because you know, one attack is bad. Two attacks is is, is an issue. One rogue, rogue pirate ship causing problems. But now it looks like there may be several, and they're attacking a lot of ships. Remember, Darcy's ship was... Islands is... While well, being a, a mixed island of different races, still has a bunch of Minotaur there. So to attack an island with a bunch of Minotaur, you've got to be relatively confident you're going to win. You know what I mean? So there's that. Um, let's see. So um, Darsh agrees, but te tells the uh, Greer that he should go ahead and continue on to RDL, that he'll see that the Emperor is made aware immediately. And Greer, you can tell, was hoping that would be the case because, you know, he's got a job to do. He's like, I appreciate that. Excellent. Good deal. Darsh gives word that they'll be heading out the next day to head back to... Uh, well, they're just stay just a day or two tops, and then they're going to head back to Kronayar. Darsh doesn't like that. He wants to stay here and find the pirates, but he agrees the Minotaur Kingdom needs to know, because a lot of this stuff where this is happening is technically either in uh, Darsh's waters, Kronayar's water, or dang close to both of them. Um, definitely outside of the human area, so what would be considered human waters, more neutral stuff. So the Emperor will not be happy about that either. So he decides that the next day, he, plus he got to get Tabork there now. Tabork's going to that kingdom as an ambassador. That's he's still got. They're friends, but dude still has some serious weight in the Fire Moon Kingdom, which is one of the more powerful kingdoms in the entire Southern Kingdoms. Uh, dude wants to get there. Darsh is going to get him there as quickly as he can. So the next day, they make plans to just kind of stay there that night, restock the ship with what they need, make sure everything looks good, and bugger back to Kronair. So we're going to switch over to Mercy now. I do a lot of bouncing around in this part of the story, so hopefully it's frustrating, because it was for them. <laughs> they get in the playing one character, I'm like, nope, now we're going over here. <laughs> Sometimes one character would be playing for like an hour and a half, the next person would play for 40 minutes, and then we're switching. Uh, it just depends on what all they get done during their section. But it takes a little less than three days, of course, to reach the Larchwood Quarry. Uh, you may remember that uh, way back... When Mercy and friends first came to these lands, there was an issue with kidnappings and slave traders, things of that nature, um, from Oromon, the arch nemesis of what is now surrounding. And Mercy and friends had decided to try to help these towns and rescue some of the kidnapped folks. And they traveled a couple days out side of Moonbrook, which was the biggest town in the area before Serenity was built. And they found that there was a mine, or an old abandoned mine, where people were being held. It was held, kind of used like a base camp for Oromon for the area. And they went in, saved a bunch of people. It's where they met Seamus, thumped some skulls, and that's what started the Battle of Moonbrook. 
where the home of the Moonbrook Drift, for those of you who may remember that. <laughs> I like that. Well, soon after that, um, well, not soon, after Serenity popped up and started becoming a prosperous land, someone moved in. This land was technically unclaimed. It's outside of the land Mercy had originally claimed as Serenity. Um, someone moved in and decided to start working the land, the mine. It wasn't officially owned by anyone. It was owned by the former king of these lands before the merge, but that king and his kingdom did not come through, so technically it was just land sitting there, and then Ormon used it, and they just took it, and then they all abandoned it, so it was just sitting there. But it takes a little less than three days for uh, Mercy, her father, and a couple of her knights, and several of their soldiers to reach the Larchwood Quarry. That's what it's known as now. Um, everyone agreed that if Mercy was considering fortifying the border guard, she was going to need stone. And getting materials like rock and stone and metal is not... This is one thing Serenity does not have a lot of. You think you just get stone anywhere, but not really. Not good building stone. Um, it has to be cut. It has to be of a certain type. Um, and it's not easy to get a hold of in the wrong areas. Uh, that's one reason why they're so excited to really get a trade agreement going with the Dwarven Kingdom of Corman, because the Dwarves have almost unlimited access to ores and metals and stone. Uh, but still, having a local source of it would be very, very helpful. And she's wanting to fortify the border between her and Ormond. She's already got a couple small towers there, but she'd received a few reports of some issues she was going to clarify after this stop. So they're stopping at the mine on the way. Because then their goal was to go check out the border guard. Or the, show the border so that her... Kind of show off her father. Here's here's the land and here's how it works. Um, so this was an opportunity for her to speak with Aguar Larchwood. The man who had claimed the land and started the quarry. He was an experienced miner and businessman. And under his guidance the mine was doing very well. And it had been a while since Mercy had been there. And already she could see the, the area had grown quickly. A mining camp had popped up around the area, made mostly of temporary loggings, uh, lodging and storage, but the few more permanent buildings had popped up. Already appeared to be a small bar or inn that was popping up there, which is usually one of the first things to pop up. So Mercy could very quickly see maybe even a small town growing around this business. That's technically falls within the area considered to be Serenity now, something she needs to be aware of. There was one well-built stone building that uh, served as offices and home of Aguar himself. As she approached the building, Mercy was pleasantly surprised to see the flag of Serenity flying high above it. In fact, several more could be seen on different dwellings throughout the camp. As she and her father and her troops brought their horses to a stop in front of the building, Aguar stepped out. He was a middle-aged man with gray hair. He was well-groomed, but his features and hands showed a history of hard work. Greetings, my lady, says Aguar, bowing very, very low. So, Mercy doesn't know a lot about the guy. She's hoping she'll come in here and work out a deal. He's already been uh, providing stone and such to some of the smaller towns in the area, because they're expanding under Serenity. Serenity's lands are technically booming at this point. Um, in a land that for the longest time was always under the thumb of one horrible tyrant or another, for the first time in hundreds of years, they literally were in a place people wanted to be there. 
We're a place where people felt safe, where people could have businesses and land and not have to worry about being taxed to death, where they weren't, weren't going to be mistreated. Um, and as that got out, more and more people were traveling from further and further to go to this land where, hey, here's a place where maybe we're not doing well in the business here, but if we sell everything we got, hop in a wagon and take it there, use that money to start a new business, this is a land where we could prosper. Not just in Serenity itself, but any of the villages around it and the different farmsteads. There was a lot of opportunity there, regardless of what you wanted to do for a living. Um, or what you wanted to sell, or what your business, or trade, or skill was. So a lot of... Serenity was really going through this very big growth boom right now. Which is awesome, but also hard on Mercy. Because that means the more people you have, the more people you need to protect them. Or protect from them, depending on the situation. So, guards military, things of the nature, and a lot of people coming in didn't have a lot of skills, and so signing up for the military was a, hers, was a very easy way to get paid well, and maybe go to one of these towns and begin, you know, protecting it kind of thing, and maybe you'll get a house there yourself, meet yourself a husband or wife, depending on your situation, and, you know, start a family there. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for you to have that growth, and with the money you made working a few years in your military, you could probably, if you saved it up, live in the barracks, whatever the case may be, save up your coin, you could very quickly buy yourself a good quality home, or start a bar, start a smithy, or a leather smithing, whatever you've always wanted to do. Um... But Aguar was, was a bit of a conundrum because she was like, well, I really want... I haven't really talked with this guy. The few messages going back and forth seem pleasant, but, you know, I'd like to come in and start buying a large amount of his product. I'm wondering how bad he's going to destroy me on pricing because, you know, this is, the, this is the queen, right? I got all the money. Well, I'm going to get as much money as I can. She's still a businesswoman. She can't afford to throw money away. But what she learns very quickly uh, is that Aguar considers himself an incredibly loyal citizen of Serenity. He wears that like a badge of honor. He's one of those things where he hears like someone in his camp badmouthing Serenity or the Queen or something. He has been known to go in the camp and slap the shit out of somebody himself. He does not tolerate that. Will not talk about negative talks about the kingdom. He has lived most of his life under one tyrant or another, and he could was couldn't be happier living in serenity as it's perfectly is right now. The opportunity to do what he has and his business booming would have never existed had Serenity not become a kingdom and Mercy not run it. And he is a damn proud citizen of Serenity, which she didn't realize that. You know, she knew he was seemed pleasant in the letters and the few people that visited him, he seems real nice and pleasant and he, he seems like he wants to open business. But she didn't realize until you're there and he's like, seems kind of starstruck, really. Um, did she really realize how much of that? So it was a very good conversation they had. He invites her in, finds that her husband, her father's there. This is awesome. The father, come on in. You know, got food and he's already got things out ready to go. Wine. So the best wine he could get a hold of and he's trying to show off and stuff and talk about and, and he knows why she's there, right? He knows he sells this and, uh, they get to chatting and talking and he's like, of course, yes, whatever you need, whatever you need, you know, set your price. We'll do it. He doesn't argue it at all. And Mercy's pleasantly surprised because she was, and when we were role-playing it, I led her to believe it was going to be more challenging than, than this. So she was all prepared to come in here and to play hardball or do what she had to do or offer protection and such. And dude's like, nah, you wanted it yours. Um, but yeah, he, gave, he offers them a tour of the quarry and so on like that. So he, uh, she accepts and um, they kind of go wandering around and such and get a little bit of a tour. Uh, already the place is much larger than it used to be. 
In fact, it's barely recognizable to her. What was a small quarry with a few tunnels off of it has now become a, three times the size uh, with multiple branches going way deeper and such. Uh, the vine, uh, the uh, produces well. Um, it does. It has come across some small amounts of silver and iron, and the rare gem or two will pop up. When I say that, I don't mean a rare gem, but a, rarely they'll find a gem. Primarily, they find coal and stone. Uh, and those two things are definitely profitable for an area like this that's growing. Uh, cutting the stone, cutting it into blocks, and it being strong stone and being cut correctly uh, is very, very important. Plus, they deliver. So it's like, yes, we'll cut this stone, and for this much money, we will bring it to your town or your farm. Uh, and that is something people are like, uh, yes, that's the hardest part of getting it here, please. Um, so, so they give a big tour of it. It's much larger, and it's already gone way deeper than it ever had before. Most of the miners here are locals from Serenity, from the area of the different towns, maybe who didn't really have farmland or were down on their luck originally, trying to, some folks just looking for a job to provide for their families. But some people are, again, new to the area, and they're like, okay, we need a job. Oh, the mine's hiring, and he pays well, and he's known for paying well and being a pretty good dude. As long as you work hard and you don't try to steal nothing, he's a good guy to work for. He has pretty strict security around the place. He hires his own guard and such. Uh, but Mercy already knows, just from what she's already sent her own uh, knights in and reconning it earlier, that they're not bullies or nothing like that. They're more for protection of the camp um, than anything else. Uh, he's popular because he pays well. Probably more than he should. But because of that, he has a very little theft percentage. He doesn't really have to worry much about that. He's, you know, he pays so well, people are afraid of losing that job. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's 100%. There's always going to be somebody. But overall, it's pretty good. Um, for the amount of um, Mercy's looking for, he's like, I, I you know, may need some assistance in shipping, because they're talking about numbers and the amount of stone. And she's wanting it not maybe to come to Serenity a little bit, but more right now she wants it to go to the border. And that's another day or two travel to the edge of her land. Because she put her border out a good distance. So if somebody buzz, does bust through, she's got time to pull people back from the farmsteads and things in that area. Um, what he does offer her, though, is a gift. Um, and he said that they, early on, while mining, they'd come across one thing and... Uh, uh, he always hoped that he'd have the opportunity to meet her so he could give it to her in person. And what he gives her is a very good size ruby. Normally, this ruby would be worth 1,000 gold. If it's well cut, maybe 5,000. Uh, it's a very wealthy ruby. It's in its rough form. No one's cut it. He says, the biggest gem they find, and he would like to donate that. He wants to give it to her as a gift to show how serious he is about that. And she's like, I'm offering to buy 1,000 gold worth of stone, you're giving me that much money right up front. He goes, I want you to understand how happy I am to be working with you. Right up front. She takes it. Okay, cool. You're not going to turn down a fat gem. Um, so it's that. So they spend a day or so there hanging out. Um, there are spare rooms there he has for travel and both she and her father get a room not together, obviously, but he has everybody else kind of camps out around. They get to meet people, the, talk to the miners. Everyone seems pretty happy. Most people are pretty excited she's there. Uh, so overall, it's a very good trip. She spends a day or so there. The next day, she heads out, and she goes towards the border. Right, She's heading to the border guard. 
Um, it takes another couple of days to get to the to that. When she reaches the primary border guard, because the border guard is is not just one area, the primary one is under uh, the command of a Captain Hunter Thorns. So Hunter uh, has approximately twenty soldiers there. There's not a ton of them at the border at this point, and there are six smaller towers, all within range that if you know, like a beacon situation. You light the fire on top; it's close enough that you'll see it, but you're probably not going to see it. If it, you know, you're not really going to see the tower if it's not lit. You know what I mean? Barely on the edge of vision. So far enough apart that, you know, it's going to take a while to get to them, but you light the thing way up top and one of them's on a hill, they're going to be able to let each other know. There are six other smaller towers. Each one has an average of between three and five men. So it's very barely listed. These people are here not to defend the border as much as they are to let them know if something is coming. Um, each one of these things are built very well. They're small, um, but it wouldn't be too hard to hold up a short-term siege in one. If you needed to come back in and hopefully wait till Mercy could come and help you, there's the chance to do that. Um, inside the central station, there's inside of its walls, there's garden, food stores, some basic livestock, uh, supplies are delivered monthly. Each one has the beacon fire, as I mentioned. So far, there's never been any real sign of trouble. Um, But as I mentioned, this is also one of the first stops on Mercy's uh, freedom train, if you will. So when when people are being smuggled, when the rebellion is smuggling people out of Oramon, this is their first stop. You know what I mean? A lot of the supplies that come in monthly are backpacks with bedrolls, basic foods, bandages, things that will help these people move on to get to the closest town, which is several days away. Here's some stuff. Get in there. Get to that town. Each town, Mercy has garrisons either in it or very nearby it, ready for that type of thing to take these people on, help them get settled or help them move on, whatever the case may be. Um, so she's hanging out there. The other, uh, the other issue that she runs into while they're there hanging out is that there is, according to, because they have a couple scouts as well, that roam beyond the border. Of course, they're not fools. Um, and this is something she, he goes, I was literally writing the report to, to send it to you today. He goes, it appears that the Oromanians, or the Oromon Empire, how you want to call them, is building some type of building as well. It's probably a good three to four days away from what would be considered the border of this land, Serenity. But it appears to be a small fort or garrison of some kind. And it is the first time Oramon has had anything of any kind in this area. Uh, they've never guarded this border, and once you travel past that, it'd be another couple of days before you'd finally come to any of the small towns or farms. The Empire of Oramon is one of the largest chunks of land to come through the merge as one solid chunk. Um, are there reasons for that? Don't know. But a huge section came through of Oromon. They lost very little of their king of their empire and their strength coming through the merge. So now they're surrounded by a bunch of a lot of weaker kingdoms. They're in a pretty good spot. So the fact that they're now starting to build something on the border of Mercy's land does bring some concern. I mean, Mercy's building there as well, so they could be thinking the same thing, but still, she figured it would happen. It's happening a little sooner than she thought. Her and her father decide to stay there. 
for just a for a couple more days. You know, hang out, see the things, talk about what the uh, they're wanting to do because she's wanting to now. I mean, she's wanting to drastically increase this. Maybe not build a wall, but maybe build a wall. You know what I mean? Like they're they're talking about what can we do geographically? What can we do to shore up defenses in this area? Do we need a big fort here? Do we need a bunch of small forts? Do we need a big wall? Is a wall even feasible? If not, then how? What's the best way to defend the area? So Mercy got to do a lot of actual strategy and kingdom uh, governing, I guess would say, uh, in this in this adventure that she had never really got to mess with much in Serenity, and she really enjoyed that. That was something she had a, a lot of fun with that I remember. So she liked getting in there and actually coming up with these ideas. And here's what I'd like to build, and here's what I think would work. Um, and I'm playing advisors, so I can occasionally throw pieces of good advice in to help. Um, but she really, really liked that. Um, so at this point, we're going to switch back over to Dandy again. So Dandy and Michael spend two to three days in town. Um, Alejandro's happy to have them stay. and Take the money, sure. These people must stay happy. Stay as long as you'd like. And again, they're Saying they're just looking around town, seeing what the prospects are of, you know, maybe finding a place to stay. You know, they play off like they're poorer than they are, of course. They're like, you know, we can afford to stay here for a couple of days while we're searching out. If not, we have family back in Paxawal who we were staying with we can always go back to. But, you know, we're just trying to see if there's something feasible here, land we could we could maybe live in, maybe get a job somewhere, get a place to stay there. Just see what the options are. Um, and there are several different places of interests in this area. And because this is what they asked me. What, what, what does this town have? So there's the Pick and Hammer Tavern. Uh, another was a small bar that's been here a long time. Uh, it also changed its name, obviously. Um, but it's owned by a gentleman named Fabian Shad, and he uh, runs that. Uh, there's the Eye of the Ruby, which is actually a gem and ore store. Uh, most of the stuff that comes out of the mine is iron, coke, coal, um, things of that nature. But when some metal comes out, this uh, it's actually it's owned by Gilhuli and Gilhuli Syed and Syed, Gilhuli Syed and Gilhuli uh, is kind of uh, works with, with the mine. Like, it's not like he's works for the mine, but he's like got a contract kind of thing. So, ores and gems and stuff come through, and, and he will a lot of times buy that up. He gets a good price for always buying it, you know. You walk out of here with a wagon load of silver, I will buy it. I'm always going to get this price, you know. But when you, if you with the more whatever you get, I will buy off you. So he's pretty wealthy as well. Um, then there's also a mayor's house. The town has a mayor. Uh, Camberbrook Sinestra Third is the mayor of this town. Seems his family has uh, been the mayor of the town for generations. Uh, then there's the mine itself. Uh, some basic info in the town. Things of that nature. So, over these next few days, they spend some time hanging out around town. Visiting the stores. Talking to people. Trying to find out things they need to without blatantly asking the questions. You know? Um, so they go to the All Goods Store, and I think we all know the name of the All Goods Store. At least you should. I've mentioned very often that in every town there seems to be a Bertram's All Goods. 
but not in this town. This town has a place named Vivix. All goods. Dandy's like, huh. It's not named Bertram. Well, she's seen general stores before, but normally it's not something's all goods, because Bertram's all goods is basically the Walmart of Merged Worlds. Um, and, interestingly enough, Bertram's all goods pop up in many cities and towns, regardless of their world of origin. Seems to be one of the only things that is consistent across many different worlds. That everybody everywhere knows that if you want some good quality goods, general store, Bertram's All Goods. <sighs> Chalky milk. So they learn some things. Um, at the Vivex store, they can find general goods. And they do go there. They go check out the general store. Basic goods. She finds some decent uh, cloth, like silk and stuff there, that's for sale that's uh, pretty well priced. So she dandy buys a little of that. Again, saying, oh, this could be something. This is, this is a good price on silk. And hinting like, do you get shipments in of cloth early? If I was to try to be a seamstress here, are there other seamstresses selling clothing? If I was to make clothing, would you sell them in your... You know, kind of that talking like, hey, we're perspective, we're thinking here. I make a lot of good clothing. I do repairs. And he's like, actually, yeah. He goes, people come through here all the time looking for clothing. And, you know, it, because, but it's not, you know, super, super wealthy town. Having someone to repair stuff, more of a repair shop would do well here. And yeah, if you made things, sure, we could work something out. You want to sell them in the store. Uh, again, remember, everybody's human here, right? I got, so I'm not going to tell you what race everybody is. Everybody's human in this town. I, I mentioned that earlier. So that's, if you're wondering why I'm not saying what they are, it's because everybody's human. Um, he has the regular stuff you'd find, a good selection of mining equipment, because some people do try to do their own mining. There's the main mine, but some people will you know, go off a mile or two outside of town and try to start their own mine in land that wasn't owned by anybody. Uh, but he seems very friendly, but he seemed odd. Like, he was one of those guys, like, I don't, I, I, I feel bad because I don't remember what weird things I gave him. Uh, I just have it down here, but acts odd. And uh, that usually meant that he had some type of vocal tick or he had some type of weird thing that he was saying in the middle of, uh, in the middle of, you know, like, <laughs> but you know what my mom used to say? He would always throw some type of thing out there like that. I like to give people that kind of thing, especially if they're regular people, but I want them to be memorable. He's like, hey, he's always like, hey, I can get you that, sure, hey. Everybody had kind of had their own different thing that told them apart. So if, they, if there was somebody who was became a regular in the story, like a Molly or something, who made the pies. They walk in, they kind of know what, what greeting they're going to get. This town is a one-shot adventure, so I don't remember what his was. But I remember having down that he was uh, friendly but odd. And I like to do that. So by, by me saying he's odd, I don't mean odd like mysterious, you know, or odd like you know nervous. He was just an odd person. They go and they spend... Uh, Michael... Makes a point of spending some time at the Pick and Hammer Tavern. Uh, again, owned by a gentleman named Fabian. Uh, it's a relatively small place, pretty dark. It's obviously one of the older buildings in town. And in the evenings, it's very much crowded with miners. I don't mean children. I mean people who dig in a mine. I want to clarify that. Panda says, It makes me happy to hear your players picked up some random non-combat skills. Or if that was a thing one could do in D&D. Oh, very much so. Uh, especially in 2nd edition. That's probably one of the things that 5th edition is making me a little more sad on. It doesn't give 
a lot of that. Like, I'm, I'm not saying it, it, it's saying you can't, but it's more of a, if you want to, go do it. There's nothing to help you. The second edition player handbook had chapters just based on non-weapon proficiencies. For everything from gem cutting to disguise to pickpocketing, tumbling, rope use, fire water, write, reading and writing, because not everybody can do that. Um, uh, fletching. You want to be able to make your own arrows. Things that you could do to make money. And sometimes characters would have that early on in the game. And they'd be like, hey, while we're on this adventure... I want to look for supplies for arrows. And they will make them at the camp at night. And when they get... They're not making them for themselves. Some person's like, I couldn't shoot a bow and arrow if I need to. But I make really good arrows. You know? So they get in town and they'll be in town like, Hey, does anybody sell arrowheads? And you'll get them and they'll put them together. And they get to the next town, they sell well-made arrows. Um, I've had characters do that as... A, especially early on when you don't have a lot of wealth yet. Having some type of profession besides just thumping skulls can be very beneficial. Everything from leather working. Sometimes people make their own leather armor. Armor smithing, weapon smithing. That was another two that were in there. Jewel cutting, making your own jewelry. A lot of that stuff was very detailed on how it worked in such and second edition. So it was very easy to add that. Everything from musical instrument. I want to learn how to play a lute. And maybe at the campfire at night, I'm sitting here just jamming, entertaining people. I'm not a bard. I don't get any real skills from it. But, you know, there may be a situation down the road where I have to pretend I'm a bard. I whip out my loot and start playing, it makes it a lot more believable, you know? Um, so I, I very often promoted them to take skills that they would know. And I mean that like, when you're nine and you're growing up in a farmstead with your parents in a poor t mining town, you're not only going to take skills in weaponsmithing and jewel crafting and armor smithing. You know what I mean? You're going to learn some stuff growing up that may not help you in the adventuring life, per se, but still be a skill you have. Fishing was literally a skill uh, in 2nd Edition uh, Player's Handbook. I want to take fishing. That means different types of fishing, knowing what type of baits will help catch certain types of fish, things of that nature. Um, there was a lot of stuff like that. You could be like, oh, hey, I'm going to do that, right? Um, and then some people, you know... D&D &D was the, was the money-making thing. You walk into a town and be like, what jobs need to be done? And the, I'm playing Skyrim on stream right now. That's basically the goal. Sell the stuff I find, go on quests where people will pay me to do it. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with having a backup in the middle of all that. Uh, Panda says, I was worried if I wanted to do something like that that I'd take away from me being actually useful in the game and make my character weaker. No, not at all. In fact, um, adding depth to your character is highly rewarded. I will very likely occasionally work a situation in that having that skill will be beneficial just because I know you have it. It's not a situation I'm making for you to be uber successful or fail. I'm just putting in a cool situation where you may get to use this weird seamstress thing like Dandy. I put this whole section in because they'd hinted that she'd had seen and she'd sewed her own clothes and such. And uh, you'll remember back when they all came back from the dead after the fight in the Citadel, they were in rags. It was Dandy who literally sewed clothing together out of what they found there to get them by because they had nothing. You know what I mean? Um, with what little things she could find. So it's stuff like that. You know, Darsh has fishing. You know, he's the one who's going into the river, coming back with fish while Dandy's sewing up their clothes. Mercy's the one who knows how to make a fire because she's got fire building and she's working on that. And, you know, Artemis has cooking. So she's taking what few potatoes and mushrooms they found and she makes a pretty tasty meal. All of those are skills you could take in second edition that sometimes could help you in the game and sometimes just added to you as a character. Um, 
I really, really promoted that kind of thing. Taking something that would be unusual, but believable. You know what I mean? If she's an elf and she's been alive a hundred years, she learned to do something besides just pray in that time. You know what I mean? So... Artemis liked cooking. She knew a bit about cooking. That was one of the skills that she had. So a lot of times when they were in camp, they'd be like, I found two potatoes, he got a fish, and there's these weird blueberries. <laughs> She's like, I can do something with that. Bring them over here. Uh, Smashy said, crap, what are we going to do to make money? Well, you guys are clerics of the, working under a specific church. So right now you guys are probably going to get a little bit of a payroll. But we'll, we'll worry about that, Jim. Don't worry. I promise. We'll make sure you're not too poor. Um... But anyways, I wanted to, I was giving that as an example that this is a good way of the story to let the characters role play someone else. I'm being this character who in this situation has to pretend there's something than they are as well. They're role playing something else using skills I chose at the beginning that may not have been important, but allow me to add a really cool backstory to a situation. So I, I very often rewarded that to my players. If you can make something mundane useful, not overpowered, but find a way to make it useful, uh, that was that was you get some fat bonus XP for that kind of thing. Um, so anyways, Michael was hanging out in this inn at night, this bar. Uh, people there weren't too friendly. You know, it's just miners at the end of a hard day. Most of the ones that were in here were single or just lived in the town for mining. And when I say miners, fifteen twenty. Like, there's not a lot. It's not a huge town, you know. Um, he doesn't really get any information. Most of what he hears is non-important gossip. Although occasionally he'll, he'll hear ta whispers of strange things going on around town, but without anything specific. These are just the people that she, they visited over these three days. Uh, they visited the Eye of the Ruby. They spoke with Gil Hooley. Um... He also tries to sell them gems and such, and jewelry, of course. Oh, wouldn't your wife love this bracelet? Not too much, you know. It's, you know, because he can sell right off the bat that, based on what they're giving off, they're not wealthy, and they don't have any skills that would help him. So they can't say, "Hey, we'll, you know, bring you gems and such." His her clothing was not really going to help there. So in this situation, he views them as a potential customer trying to sell some of the cheaper jewelry that the regular folks could afford. From what they learn is a lot of his more wealthy stuff, he sends off to Paxwall, where he has a cousin who has a market stall there in the market, big place of Paxwall, where a lot of the wealthier, better jewelry goes. And some of the cheap stuff, too, for different people. But the good stuff, they go there and they try to sell to the fine houses of Paxwall. Um, while they're chatting and hanging out and such, and they try to ask questions, uh, Dandy feels that he's being particularly nosy. Of all the people they've spoken with, he seems to be asking a lot about them and what brings them to town and, and often repeats questions that he's already asked. And Dandy's like, I wonder if he's trying to get see if I remember what I said the last time. I'm like, no, he just asked that. But these are things that she's relatively picking up on. Um, let's see. Speaking with a few town militia, there's not many, mostly volunteer. Um, at, in the town itself, there's you know, the guards are like, yeah, we, we don't really have problems with crime. No real crime here, at least nothing major. I mean, every town has a you know, pickpocket or something now and again in the marketplace or, you know, somebody gets caught robbing into a house. But overall, comparatively, they have very, very little crime. But part of that is, is that the town itself has a basic curfew. By like 8, 9 o'clock, by full dark, everyone's in their homes. They, they do that for safety because back before the merge, you know, there were more being in the middle of nowhere. There were bigger issues, wolves and things to deal with. Um, 
but they not a lot of people are out after dark. The bar and the inn being some of the only places that may run late. Um, but most of the people will get out of there and head straight to the house kind of thing. Um, let's see, what else? Um, they get the feeling from talking to people that the town is kind of a gloomy town. People aren't very happy or chipper. They're not necessarily angry or anything like that. It's just like it's, they're like in a town full of depressed people, if that, if that means anything, if you can kind of get that feel. Um, whenever they try to talk about anything personally and how's the town, what's it like living here, people seem a little nervous, not really wanting to get into a lot of details. They'll give the history, but you know, they, uh, and stuff, but nobody really talks about real cl- recent events or anything of that nature. Um, and the entire t- three days that they're going through all this, at no time does Menandra sense any form of undead. Right. Want to clear that? That because that's something that. Uh, I got asked regularly, no. At no time do, does Menandra sense any undead at all anywhere within her range of ability in this city. So very quickly, they're like, okay, undead is not the issue then. You know, because I guess they, they kind of figured that. They're undead hunters. They get summoned to come to this town by a friend of theirs who knows they're undead hunters. Maybe he needs help fighting undead. That was what their first thought was. So they asked that a lot. Do, is there vampires? Do we sense anything? And they're like, no, you sense nothing. Now, it has happened. We're very powerful undead. Can sometimes mask themselves from Menandra. The very powerful. But they intelligently, as players, realized if it was that powerful, probably wouldn't have just sent in Dandy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, probably would have got the whole group together kind of thing. So uh, they're like, okay, we don't think this is an undead thing, which they are excited about because that means they got to do something a little outside of what they normally got to do. Dandy did it. Um, they also went by the mine. Um, that's where they met, uh, foreman's name is Giacomo, Giacomo, uh, says that the mine employs a total of about 120 people, uh, local workers, people that sometimes come in seasonally, things of that nature. The mine itself was a very small mine before the merge. Um, but as they started to try to rebuild it after the merge, very quickly broke into very successful, Chunks of ores and stones and coal. Now, um, because of safety issues, it's a mine in a medieval time period, right? Not the safest place. No one is allowed inside the mine except for actual miners. Michael inquires about work. Uh, Giacomo says, always looking for new miners. Do you have experience and such? If it's something you're interested in, I'm, if you're serious. He's like, well, we're, we're thinking of moving to the town. He goes, if you're seriously interested, yes, I can find you work. And they act very excited about that, Danny and Michael. Like, oh, good, then this could be a place we could live. And that's important. No one's trying to run them out of town. You know, no one's trying to be like, you know, we don't want your kind around here. And people, oh, yeah, we could use the same interest. Oh, yeah, we could use another miner. They've only had one person warn them to get out of town so far. And then the last place that they kind of visit is the mayor's town. And they do that so under the guise of, hey, we're thinking about moving here. We feel like if we're thinking about making a lifestyle here, we probably should give that intention to the, the, the guy who runs the town. And so they go in and they meet Mayor Camberbrook Sinestra III. Uh, so again, he said that uh, his family, he himself invites them in. And he said, oh yes, I don't get many visitors here. Please come in and sit down. I run the town. The town mostly runs itself. 
um, you know, if there's a dispute or somebody wants to get married or divorced, whatever the case may be, I got to step up. That's my job. But he's a wealthy dude. He has in, his money is what invested in the mine. So he makes a large chunk. He's partners with uh, the foreman who runs it, started the mine, but he funded it using the mayor's money. So technically the mayor owns the mine. Right. So, you know, most of the money goes to the mayor and things. Uh, so he's he's the only real rich person in town. Um, what else? Uh, he says uh, he, he's very friendly, very inviting, uh, talks quite a bit that he'd like to get more trade with other cities. Uh, they get very few travelers up here because there's no way to pass through here. This isn't a town you would go through on the way to somewhere else. You hit this town, then you hit the mountains. There's nowhere else to go. So there's not a lot of travel through. People come here specifically to get mine stuff and then leave. Uh, so he'd like to work on something else like that. I mean, something, you know, some type of trade thing going to, to build the town up. Because, again, he's a wealthy guy here. And the more he builds the town, the more money he's going to get. Um, uh, what else do we have here? The one thing that they found in their conversation with the mayor is that he was a little bit too friendly. He was overly happy to see them. Overwhelmingly would love to have them move into town. Anything you can do to help him get him started, and we'd love to have him move here. Again, asking lots of questions about them, but he seemed very overly friendly, is what they said they got out of that conversation. Now, is that what I intended as a dungeon master? No one knows, but that's what they got from the conversation. He was too friendly. So, over those three days, that's kind of what they did. You get, and here's the interesting thing. That's the last page of this book. So we're moving into the next tome of Merged Worlds. Kind of. There's some snippets i got to go back and forth for, for the first little bit here. Um, that's the back of the book. And there's another, there's another one after this. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so, they decide that it's time for them to start running some recons. Start getting out and finding out a little bit more. And the best way they can do that is to go out at night when no one else is around. Um, for the couple days they're there, very easily they're able to work one of the metal bars out that Dandy could slip through the window very easily. Michael can, but he'd have a hard time getting Menanda through unless he's pulling it all the way through. Um, and he's not quite as quite as agile as Dandy is, but they're on the second floor. They thinks that they could probably get out of there. Dandy could fit through it for sure. Most humans could not. Remember, Michael is actually... He's pretty broad, he's muscular, but he's also on the very small side of humans. Barely five feet tall. Um, Dandy's like three and a half. Like, she's really small. So, you know, it'd be like, almost like a kid and a young teenager trying to squeeze out the window. Um, you're not expecting as much of that, you know? So the bars, just removing one bar gives enough room for them to do that. Um, and so they decide that they want to get out and take a look around the mayor's house. Because they believe that the mayor... That's who they didn't like. They want to get more information on the mayor. No one's allowed in the mine. The mayor runs the mine. He was too nice. 
little too rash. And he wants to find out, they want, they want to know more about the mayor and what his business dealings are. And no one seems to really talk about the mayor much. They only have good things to say or adequate things to say. But a lot of people don't talk about the mayor. But you know what? Let's hop over to Artemis for a minute. We just spent a big chunk of time with <laughs> Mercy and uh, Dandy. Let's see what Artemis is into, shall we? After checking her symptoms and such, uh, Artemis believes that at this point, um, she's not going to screw around. And she's going to cast a heal spell. Heal spell, at least in second edition, was the most powerful healing spell. It's a heal you all the way back to full and fix everything. Um, she it's not an easy spell to cast and she just at this point had recently gained access to it she could cast one like it's a pretty powerful spell um, but she was at the point that she could cast a heal spell and she's the only cleric in the entire kingdom who can she's the highest level cleric in all of serenity at this point it's not to say occasionally a higher one may not pass through they do entertain guests but as living there specifically she is, the, she is the highest level cleric at, uh, by all means. Which also makes sense. She's the high cleric. So, they cast a heal spell. It takes Artemis a little bit of time to put that together. Um, Quan literally passes out. Like, <laughs> Seamus is like, you're relieved, sir. Like, and, and Quan's like, thank God. And he walks over to the corner, lays down on the floor, doesn't he? And just, he's snoring within like 30 seconds. Because he has been just overworked the last few days protecting Miyasha. Um, and any one of the knights stepping in is the, other than Mercy herself. Mercy or one of the knights stepping in is the thing he wants more than anything else. Artemis also just as good, you know. Artemis steps in the room. Of course, Artemis, he'd still stay awake to protect Artemis. But, you know, he sees Seamus walk in the room and he's like, oh, thank gods. Oh, thank gods. I'm going to bed now. You got this, Seamus? Seamus like, I got this, man. Because remember, they're very brotherly. The whole group of knights are very close. He's like, you did good, man. I got this. And God's like, yeah, I'm going to sleep in the corner. And he's out. That is one thing. He, he sleeps in trees. He's the sneaky guy. He can sleep anywhere. But after a while, while they're conked out, he, uh, she casts the heal spell. Um, and sure enough, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It, it cures Miasha. She wakes up feeling very refreshed, much more than Artemis. It takes a chunk out of Artemis to cast that spell. Um, and she's asking what's going on. She doesn't know. Last thing she remembered, she was standing in the town square. And now she's laying in a bed in her, in her little bed in the temple room. And the head cleric Artemis is standing here. And she was like a day or so away. So something's happened, right? Um, Artemis explains the situation. She'd been in a coma. She came here healed. Quan protecting. She appreciates that. Um, all that kind of thing. And now that she's awake, and they're both fine, uh, Quan unconscious in the corner. They're not worried about Seamus and everyone else is going to step out of the room. Seamus is going to stand outside. He's going to protect it at this point so that the ladies can have some privacy. Um, oh, give me one second. Make sure I don't, I didn't forget something here. Um, ba -ba 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 uh, that one, that one. That's right. That's right. That's right. Sorry. 
Weston. Okay. So yeah, that's right. Weston um, uh, is all this jumping. Yes, sir. Uh, Weston is also going to kind of look around a little bit. He's going to kind of step outside and check because again, he's got a little detect evil, right? Ten foot radius at all times uh, going on. So I mean, literally just being him, he can detect evil if it walks within ten feet of him almost any time. So he's you know just he's like I'm going to look around town a little bit. I'm back in a little bit. He goes wandering around. Miyash is up, and uh, you know she's been laying in her robes for several days, so she basically changes. And Artemis, tell because I forgot. I'm sorry, I forgot a point. While they were checking Artemis before she cast the spell, they find a small, what appears to be injury, we would say, um, on her side, just under her, like around side back, uh, like. Like someone had taken a dart. Like she'd been hit with a dart or something of that nature. Like a small injury of that kind. A little tiny trail of blood came in off and that kind of thing. Um, they heal her, of course. That goes away. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, they talk about, do you remember anything? Do you remember getting hurt in that area or something? Did an animal sting you? We don't know what the cause of this is yet. Uh, Miyasha says that uh, the only thing she remembers uh, is that and, and they, she got this from Quan as well. That they entered the town, several of the locals, after they'd been there just a short while, of course, several of the locals had kind of mobbed them, like looking for healing. Oh, oh, my kid's sick. I'm sick. Please heal me. And Miyasha started healing who she could. That's why she was there. Um, and after she'd healed four, three or four people, and she'd used up half her spells, she suddenly passed out right there in the middle of the square. Quan immediately started calling for Templars, no one else, and she's not a little person. They all carried her into the temple, and that was it. She hadn't got to do anything else there except heal just a few people, and then suddenly she was down. Um, now that she's up and feeling refreshed, she'll be able to help Artemis with potentially healing other people here again. Um, and they discuss the symptoms and such and things like that. Um, Artemis and Miyasha spend the rest of the day after they say they're feeling good. Quan wakes up and actually goes to a room. Seamus um, and the, uh, the one of the two knights. Not the one, remember, one of the knights stayed out in the camp. And then the other knight came uh, in and was kind of hanging out with them. The other knight and Seamus are kind of staying in there with them, as well as a bunch of the Templars. But now people are starting to be brought in that are sick. And Artemis and Miyasha are healing them. There's a couple low-level clerics that live at the temporal normally, nobody real high, that are assisting, and a lot of times they're bringing bandages, supplies, this and that, and helping people. Um, so there's that. Um, let's see. Uh, there we spoke to the mayor. Yes, talked about the mayor. He was cool. That was Dwayne. Let them in. Sir Dante. That's the knight that's hanging out with them. Sir Snyder is outside with the garrison, and they're kind of helping out with the rest of Seamus's crew in blocking the city and not letting anyone else in, and technically out. Um, so after a day of all that, they decide they're going to get some rest as well. Um, there are some places of interest in the town as well, and as of the next day, um, they decide that they're going to... See if they can find the source of what is causing this. Is it a bug bite? That little sting-looking thing on her could have implied it was a bug bite. And so they're trying to figure out 
Okay, they're insects. They start asking around. After the next day of, of healing a bunch of the people, people are feeling a little bit better. The mayor and, and Artemis are like, we still want you to chill in your houses. You, or you've got businesses, that's fine if you have to, but you know, try not to if you don't have to. Place of interest in this town is the Ramshorn Inn, which is owned by Gertie Wafflebottom, who is an elderly halfling gentleman. Um, there's a Bertram's All Goods here, run by Bertram. Uh, this small farmer's market. Uh, this is a very much, this town is a very much farming-based town. The, the town itself has all the stuff, leather worker, there's a butcher shop, there's, you know, whatever, general goods, things of that. But a lot of it's farming and produce-based. Uh, and some local tradesmen. Uh, the farmer's market has been pretty much closed the last couple of days, but now that Artemis is there and people are starting to feel better, the townsfolks are starting to come, there's some people back in the market the next day, uh, hoping to get, because they've already lost some money on being out of business several days. Um, then there is, I'm just naming the type of businesses in town, by the way. There's the Great Oak, uh, which is owned by Zelodius Dawnlight, uh, an elven gentleman, uh, who is known as a craftsman and a carver, makes uh, art and toys and different furniture and sells them out of there. Relatively new in the area, uh, has only been there several months, um, and appears to be middle-aged, whatever that means as an elf. You know what I mean? He looks middle-aged, so he could be a thousand years old at this point. No one's really asked. There's also the militia headquarters. I mentioned there's a butcher, a leather worker. There's the copper nugget, which is a bar. And these are the things that uh, Artemis has at her disposal. So the next day, she decides Miyasha's going to continue healing people with the other clerics. But she's going to start going around town. She needs to start finding out, okay, what's causing We can heal people. But if there's something causing this, I need to know what it is. Artemis is on the case. It's hilarious, because Artemis doesn't get to do things like this very often. It was exciting to see her. Uh, but she is on the case with Quan. Seamus is now taking uh, a bit of a rest. Uh, the, they're taking turns sitting outside. Uh, Artemis and uh, Miyasha are sharing a room. Uh, they're, one of them is sleeping outside and, and one is staying outside. They've determined at this point that there needs to be protection on both of them. So Seamus is now protection for Miyasha and Quan is protection for Artemis. Quan is technically higher ranked. Um, and Quan, you know, it's just, but they're not turds about it. But, you know, he's one of those things where he's like, okay, I'm going to save Artemis. You stay in here with Miyasha. Because Seamus is a big dude. Remember, he's a really big dude. Not quite Miyasha's height. Miyasha's tall. But Seamus is a big dude. Um, and he looks a bit more threatening than Quan does. So that might help be more defensive uh, if someone's trying to do something to... Plus, Miyasha's staying in the temple on holy ground, so it's a little bit easier. But Artemis is going to start looking around town. Uh, Dante, the knight, uh, goes back out uh, to check in with Snyder, and he's staying outside the camp. They will send someone if they need any, if anybody needs anything, call them in. Artemis is like, no, we're good. Seamus's men are all staying out as well, guarding the other half of the outside of town. Uh, so she has several Templars with her, Quan, and Weston. So the next that, that next morning, when Artemis gets up and th this plan is set into place, this is what Artemis has decided to do. Yasha, of course, doesn't like it because she doesn't like anything, but she agrees with it. Um, she stays there and she's doing the heels. Um, Weston says, I took a little bit of time walking around town. Um, at no time did I sense evil. 
there's always dark spots. You know what I mean? You can walk by someone who's a jerk. He's not evil. You know what I mean? Someone's greedy and maybe going to cheat you out of, uh, you know, sell you something, a, a fake piece of art. Not necessarily evil. Uh, that would trigger a detect evil, I should say. Um, so he's like, I haven't had any issues with that. But something doesn't feel right. She's like, what? He goes, I don't know. I've yet to determine it. But something doesn't feel right. And I'm determined to find it. She's like, I'm going to go out and find it too. He's like, okay, then I'm going to be by your side. Because, again, I am a pretty powerful paladin. And I've got some skills. And I've got some abilities. But Lucas will whoop me if something happens to you. <laughs> no one wants to get on Lucas's bad side. They're like, so... Quan and I are now your left and right hand. So they go out and they start talking to some of the folks, much like Dandy was doing. And you're going to kind of notice that the Mercy and Darsh stories are a little bit more about leading and governing and dealing with some issues, whereas uh, Artemis and Dandy are a little bit more clue, mystery-based kind of things. So... Of course, one of the first places she's going to go to is to speak with the city guard. Um, she does meet with Duane, the mayor of the town, who's a nice gentleman. She's met him several times. Uh, she hadn't really met the head of the militia, uh, Wilbur Kicklighter. Um, he and his men, who are, again, not a lot of them, but they they try to keep people calm. He's been trying to keep people discouraged from traveling. He's not real, you know, he's quite open with that. He's, he, he feels that they would have handled this okay. The clerics definitely appreciate to have. I don't know if we need all these Knights of the Light and Knights of Serenity surrounding the place. Uh, I mean, you know, it seems a little harsh. I think we could have handled that. But of course, Milady, we will, of course, automatically defer to your judgment. Again, she is the spiritual leader of the whole country. We will defer to your judgment in this situation. Um... So I gave her the list of buildings, much like I gave them to you. Um, and she decides that she's going to look around. So she goes to the Ram's Horn Inn next. And she decides she's going to talk to Gertie Wafflebottom. She's met Gertie once when she came into town. Uh, she normally stays at the uh, temple. But before a temple was built, the inn was already there. So her and Mercy had stayed there on one trip previously. Gertie was very happy to meet. And she was very happy to see Gertie. Gertie was a very nice. He's a halfling. Like I said, he's an older guy. You know, halflings live into their early, I want to say, 120s, 130s on average, at most, depending on the world they're from. Uh, but he's clearly in his 80s now. He's an older guy. Um, but he runs away very clean. This is popular. People who travel through here love it. Um, it's a very good-sized place. It's actually an inn that's bigger than the town deserves, if that makes sense. Like, a town of this size normally would have an inn half the size that it is. But he always had faith the town would get bigger and better, and so he built a much larger place. Um, so now that Serenity is booming and more and more people are coming in, he has one of the nicer inns in all of the Serenity. And uh, people passing through here like to come through. He's known there for good food and all that kind of stuff. Um, she has no real concerns about Gertie. She knows Gertie, but she also thinks he owns the bar. He might know something. So he goes in there and starts chatting with him. And he says, no. He goes, he goes uh, I'll say, you know, because he's been there a long time. He's lived in this town for several decades at this point, And he knows a lot of the townsfolk. 
Um, but he says there's a lot of new folks that have moved here over the last year, year and a half, especially since Serenity really started to pick up in size. Um, that's expected. You know, a lot of people are coming. I've talked about that several times. People like the idea of a safe and friendly place to live. So there's a lot of people who live in town now. There's a lot of new faces he doesn't know as well. So it would be hard for him to say, oh, this one person's new. They could be bad. It's like there's lots of new faces in here. Um, like I said, the toy maker guy was relatively new. The leather worker's kind of relatively new to town. He's been here a little bit longer, but, you know, they're, they're relatively new in general. But nobody stands out in his mind. She has some uh, yummy food there and hangs out. But after a little while, decides she's going to go out. She checks out Bertram's All Goods. Because Artemis knows a little bit more about Bertram's All Goods than most other people. So, she goes in there. And Bertram... She's introduced to middle-aged human. He's very nice and is very pleased to see her, much as he or she is pleased to see him. They have some casual conversation. Ask if she, if he's seen anything strange in the area. Um, he does comment that people had started getting ill. Uh, so, hello, Mister Midnight. You go, buddy. Several weeks ago. Several, sorry, I got a kitty under me. Several weeks ago, but it was just one person here. It was just people maybe getting a cold. Those things happen, you know? People might pop in and have a cold, be a little sick, something like that. Um, even though it was like, oh, it's a little, the flu is going around kind of thing. He goes, it wasn't until the last week or so when all of a sudden it started hitting en masse. And you'll remember, this didn't start in this town. Was This town wasn't the first town they heard about it. They heard Moonbrook had the problem, which is the biggest town of Serenity. You're okay, buddy. Um, so he's like, you know, he doesn't know any of the other towns, or even that Moonbrook. She tells him that. But he's like, I only really know that this, you know, something of that nature. Um, she goes to check out the Great Oak next. Full-blooded elf, she'd heard he lived here and was interested in talking to him, much because he also does, he's supposedly a very good artist, and she thought about maybe commissioning some things for the temple. She'd heard about him earlier, and here's an opportunity to speak to him. Plus, he makes toys, and why not, right? Um, she's been told that he's, rel he's, she knows he's relatively new. He's only been in the area for probably about four or five months at this point. He was a middle-aged elf, is what people describe, but it's so hard to know what that means. Um, but when they get there, the store's closed. Um, supposedly, he lives upstairs. When they knock on the door, there's no answer. Um, they, there's the decision they have a conversation. Do we break in? And she's like, well, I don't think so. Um, he may have traveled, you know, just talking, he may have traveled to one of the other towns to sell wares. Some of the people here do that. They'll go to Moonbrook. Moonbrook's the closest town. Moonbrook's kind of centralized. Most towns can get to Moonbrook before they get to the other towns. It's like Moonbrook in the middle and all the other ones are kind of around it. So, Moonbrook being the bigger trade room, some people go there every so often to trade goods. He may have been gone the last couple of days. They're asking the militia guy, the head militia, and he's like, I'll go. I haven't seen him in a few days, but to be honest, I haven't looked for him. We've had a lot going on. Artemis is like, okay. And I see the young lady playing Artemis taking notes. I always love that. Uh, next, they went to see the butcher shop, which is not far down the road. When they go inside, uh, they know, they're told that the butcher shop is run by a gentleman named Tannen, 
who also lives in the back of the butcher shop. Um, they uh, show up, and when they arrive, there's a young man working there at the time, kind of cleaning up around the place. Um, let me grab him. All right. So they go in, and they're, they start asking questions. Hi, it's, it's Tannen here. And he goes, uh, he's like, oh, that's my boss. He goes, no, he actually... He's out of town today. He's actually heading to a farmstead up the road, supposedly getting meat. He's a butcher. He's getting like some meat delivered. And it hasn't shown up, probably because they're sick, and he went up there to get it because we need to have the meat, you know. If nothing else, may borrow their wagon to bring it up here and then bring it back later and maybe pay a little less for it. But he's like, we're running low on meat, and he had to go get some. So everybody being sick and everybody being out of here, he had to go get some. Um, and his name is Palin, by the way. Young kid's name is Palin. He's probably 14, 15. Says he lives uh, with his grandma. Uh, and he, he got the job here like a month or so ago uh, working under Tannen because he doesn't have a skill, but Tannen's been teaching him. And maybe one day, you know, he'll be a butcher or take over or get a raise or whatever, but mostly just does cleaning up of stuff. And he goes, trust me, cleaning up a butcher shop, not as, as fun as I thought it was going to be. But he's just been there a month or so. Um, while they're there, they are looking at the food and they're checking it. And, you know, because at first they're like, well, maybe there's, you know, rotten meat. And where do you get your food from? Well, he buys it from the local farmers. Most farmers have, you know, crops and such. But occasionally they'll have, some people will have like meat storage as well. So a couple of farms are about breeding and uh, he buys meat from, from several of the local farms. It's not all one place. There's not like one farm that, because I think that's what she was looking for. Is there a farm that the meat's coming from that we should look at, you know? And he's like, I can guarantee you. He goes, I worked here long enough to know bad meat. He goes, I, we, this is good meat. It's good quality. We're running low. Good quality meat. They're like, okay, well, Tannen's not supposed to be back till tomorrow. We'll stop and speak with Tannen tomorrow. Now, they leave there and they decide to go to the leatherworking shop again. Human runs the leatherworking shop and it is also closed. Now, they know that he frequently goes to uh, Moonbrook. But he normally only goes, you know, I guess you'd say on the weekends when it's busier kind of thing. So it's not odd. For, it's odd for him to not be now because they keep asking the, the, the head of the... Uh, Guards, kind of militias going around with him. Wilbur, kind of hanging out with him. He goes, that is odd. He's usually open this time. Uh, he's got a small house actually outside of town. But he's normally in here with the shop open today. So, I don't know, maybe he went over there early. Maybe he's not feeling well. If you'd like, I could send a runner to his house to make sure he's all right. Artemis is like, I think, yeah, send send one of your militia, one of your guys out there. Just to check on him, because if there's someone out there sick, maybe he's too sick to get here, then... Well, I'll send some of the Templars to bring him in where we can heal him, or I'll get an escort out there. But it could be simply that he's sick. Because that's what she's worried about. Is the elf sick up in his room and they need help and he just can't get to the door? I don't want to kick in if that's not the case. Second thing is maybe this is the same situation. Um, so she hits a bunch of these different places. And there's also the Copper Nugget, which is a bar um, owned by a uh, human named Pelto, um, who's a very large, gruff dude. Not Seamus Yarge, because Seamus is big. Seamus is a very much like a Little John character from Robin Hood. If you're looking for some very tall, very, you know, just kind of thick. Um, Pelto is tall, but he's also much, like, 
thicker, like very girthy, very muscular, but kind of like uh, like that, almost like a. You're, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but I've seen like the wrestlers that kind of look like they're fat, but they're also really muscular. I mean, they're really good wrestlers and they're lifting people around, but they've also they've kind of got that thick midsection. It's not all like six pack and such. It's more like a thick meaty section. That's kind of what he has. Um, he's a very gruff dude. Uh, doesn't have a lot of information. Doesn't seem too interested in Artemis and them that are there. Uh, you know, they buy some drinks, so he treats them like customers. But uh, even the few people they talk to, he's not a real friendly guy, but he has some good alcohol, so people like hanging out. Um, so, as they're hanging out here, looking at things, Artemis is like looking for clues. And she's looking very hard. Um, and she does okay. Um, let's see. So they go to the second... Um, at this point, she decides, okay, your Detect Evil 10-foot radius hasn't really picked up anything. Maybe we need to start looking a little bit wide, wider. He's like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I have a Detect Magic that does way more than 10 feet. You know, her Detect Magic is an issue. Or is a thing. She goes, plus, I'm thinking Detect Magic, not Detect Evil. You're not finding evil doesn't mean it's not necessarily magic. Because magic itself is not always good or evil. Magic is a force without alignment. person casting it could be good or evil. A good mage can cast magic missile. Or a bad mage can. The spell itself is not evil. So magic missile would not detect evil. Seamus and goes, oh, no. He understands, of course. He knows how that works. He goes, that makes sense. Okay, we'll start looking for some other things. So Artemis decides she wants to start looking... And casting a couple spells. Now, of this spell type, she can do a couple a day. She couldn't go do the whole town by any means. So she's got to pick her places specifically. And Artemis decides that she wants to start at the middle of the town. So the middle of the town is where, where Miyasha kind of got taken down. Um, where she, she got passed out. And It's not where the market square is. That's actually a second actual market square on the, more on the edge of town. But this is where there's a big central well... Everybody can get their water out of there. There's a fountain. There's a statue that's been there for a long time. The head's missing because it was for the old king that they all hated. So they knocked his head off as soon as they, he wasn't there around anymore. But it was still a, a working fountain. They didn't destroy the rest of it. A working fountain. But it does fresh water from a very old thing. And so there's a deep well in the middle and the water. They can bucket it up. But there's also a, a spring system. Uh, Panda says, I keep getting all these ideas about what could be going on. Maybe the three merchants that weren't around are spreading it, or maybe even the secret cause. See, that's, that's, and that's what Artemis is trying to do, just like Dandy is and hers. They're, they're hearing the clues, and granted, with them, they have a bit of a plus, because when we were going through this, I was role-playing the characters they were talking to. So the mannerisms that I gave them might have helped them lean one way or another, or somebody might have just been weird and looked guilty when they weren't. You know what I mean? So trying to do those type of things and having those interactions um, probably added a little bit more to their ability to suss out some of the problems or the potential clues that it's hard for me to just tell them in our story like right now without blatantly saying, and this is a clue that she found. You know what I mean? She had to work for it. Um, and this, these were all designed to make these characters. All these stories were designed to get them play their characters. Not just running around fighting all the time. I wanted them to have the chance to just be themselves and role-play their characters in situations that their life would pull them into. Um, so I was very excited about that. Pena says, I normally don't think so hard about the story while it's being told, so it's interesting. Oh, well, 
Appreciate that. <laughs> I'll have you know that I'm fueled on a large amount of chocolate milk tonight, so you know it's good. I'm going to fill that back up in a minute. Okay. So she decides she's going to cast a spell on the central area of town. She does not, of course, West, Weston doesn't find any evil. Uh, she casts Detect Magic. And she gets the faintest of response. So faint, she can't determine the direction. She's somehow sensing just the faintest bit of magic. She's like, that's odd. She's like, so I could walk in any given direction and cast it again, and if I'm walking closer to it, I might find it. But if I'm walking further, I may not. There's a lot of different range that could go. And there's people watching her. You know what I mean? You can, you can imagine that in the middle of the day, townsfolks are, here's the head cleric casting spells in the middle of town. I may not stand right next to her while she's doing it, but I'm going to sure hell watch. You don't really get to see these type of things. She's a cleric of healing. You know whatever she's casting is good, right? She's not doing anything that's going to hurt anybody. So this will be a chance to see head cleric throw some mojo around. And that's a good chance for her to be impressive. And Artemis was very much, stand back everyone. Even though they didn't have to stand back, she was trying to look like she was bringing the mojo with her. She was trying to, in her mind, show that the temple was really taking this seriously. Which I appreciated that from a role-playing stand of view. Point of view. So she's casting that spell. She gets to the tennis. So they start talking about, well, what do we, what do, we do next? Faint. And Artemis is looking in all the different directions. And she's looking stores and homes and where the temple is. Well, if I go that way... Going closer to the temple. I doubt it would be closer to the temple. And she was thinking, and she said something to me that I hadn't expected. She said, how deep is the well? I said, the well itself? Pretty deep. Looks like there's a lot of rope on that thing to drop down and get the bucket. Bucket's in good shape. They keep good clean. They keep it in the well itself. There are things that they can put over it in storms and such to cut so trash doesn't get down in their well. Uh, it's a very old, old well, but it always has never run dry. Even in the worst of summers, has it ever run dry? So it's a very deep spring. Artemis is like, excellent. I want to go down the well. <laughs> I'm like, what? She goes, I want to go down the well. She said, I could barely sense it. Maybe that's because it's deep. I want to go down the well. I'm like, well, there's no stairs. She goes, okay, well, someone can lower me down, right? I'm like, let me get this straight. The head cleric of Serenity, the elven lady in the beautiful blue robes, wants some people to let her stand in a bucket and lower her down the well. And she goes, that's exactly what I want, because I want them to know I'm taking this seriously, and none of this is a two above me. And I'm like... Okay. So you can imagine Quan and Quan's like, I can go down and look. She goes, you won't be able to tell. I'm detecting magic. You go down there, you're not going to see the magic. I'm going to go down and test the magic. Obviously, if I see a problem, you can pull me right up again. Artemis has a ring of featherfall. You probably don't know what that is. Let me tell you. Featherfall is a magical spell that when you jump off of something, you lightly float down. It's one of the first rings that she had, and she's rarely really needed to use it. But remember, Artemis has a horrible fear of heights. This is another reason why I was surprised that she wanted to do this, because she's good at playing that character. But she played that character as much as I know that this would be horrifying for me. She's not claustrophobic, so that's not a problem. But the height problem, she goes, the height problem, I really don't know how high it is. It's dark down there. I can't see. 
Um, and I think that I would, I would choke that back to be able to go down and see if this is a problem. And I'm like, okay, fine. The rope breaks. She's not going to fall and break a neck. She's going to lightly float down. Someone's just going to have to find a way to get her back up again. So I'm like, okay, you want to do it? You can do it. So there's some rolls involved. Uh, they called for, um, you know, Quan's up there watching and such. And several of the Templars are doing that. And you they got some big burly dudes. Not that she's, she weighs next to nothing, but just to be in case. She, they had some guys there taking turns. And they start lowering her down. And she gets down a good distance. And she calls, okay, that's far enough because she can see the water down below. And when she gets down there, she can tell it's stone-lined. Definitely this was built a very long time ago. And it comes down, and then it's a bit broader of a space. You know what I mean? When it comes down, it's almost like a, a classic potion bottle with the thin neck and the globe. She comes down, and then it bowls out, and then the bottom half is just liquid. Like she's in the top half of a potion bottle. She goes, that's enough. I don't want to get wet. <laughs> She'll get a little bit wet. Things are dripping. Um, and she starts casting spells. So, as I've mentioned in the past, things like Moonbrook, Drift, um, and uh, little sayings like that become running gags in our things. Spells and Wells became another one. That became a thing. Uh, it's like, okay, what do we do today? We can have Artemis cast some spells and Wells. Shut up! She would say, all of her friends would make fun of her for that. If there's a well, we could send Artemis down it. Shut up! That's what I was saying. That I think I was trying to help. She always, she always take her character. The only player, always player from a very like they were making fun, but she wouldn't get that at first. I was trying to save lives, like we we know. And then she realized they're teasing. Shut up! You know that kind of a thing. But it was it was a humorous thing. So she's down there, and she's casting detect magic, and sure enough, she senses much stronger magic down here. So she has them lower down a little bit more until she can get the water. And she has them scoop some... She scoops it up and, you know, she has the bucket. She gets in. Her feet are in the water. And she has her pull, pull her back up. She gets up to the top again. She gets out. Have them pull down. Bring up a couple things of water. So she calls for a basin or a barrel. Somebody brings it. And they pour the water into it. And... Weston's like, I don't detect any evil from the water. She goes, no, it's not evil. It's magic. I'm sensing magic, but I'm concerned. I'm going to try a different spell. I'm going to cast Detect Poison on it. And everybody's like, ooh, poison. You think poison? You know, the townsfolk's like, somebody poisoning? You know, you can imagine the murmuring. Everybody else is like, we really wish you wouldn't have said that out loud in front of the whole town, but okay, if that's what you need to do. And she casts Detect. And sure enough, the water is poisoned. Magically so. Doesn't know what, doesn't know how. Sure enough, there's something wrong with this water. Now, could it be natural? It's Merge Worlds. Who knows, right? I'm not just saying somebody poured a bucket of poison down there. Somebody might notice that, you know, but there's that. So while the characters were playing, while she was going through these adventures, while she was in Town, I introduced several different characters to her. Just random people. There was a young little boy named Billy who was about 10 or 11 years old. I kept following around and asking questions of the Templars. Templars cross. I would just shush him away and such. There was a man named John who was, again, just a, one of the city guard that seemed a little bit too enraptured by Artemis. He's always trying to hang out a little bit too much, if you will. Uh, there was... 
a local beggar woman, you know, who poor lady, everybody says, she's been here forever. We give her food and such and give her a place to stay, but she's old and kind of not all there. And, you know, she meanders around through the crowds and says weird things. And I got to role play her a little bit. She was fun. So, you know, I mean, she just walked up to someone and went, crackers, crackers. Hmm. And then walked off. And they're like, what'd she mean by crackers? And they're like, Nobody knows. No one really knows what she means when she says crackers. <laughs> it's just I got to make I got to be silly and weird with people. You know, everybody had their weird twitch kind of thing. So um, I got to do a bunch of things like that. Um, so yeah, I got to meet John and I don't remember what her name was. I don't even know if I have her name written down. To be honest with you, I just remember the crackers thing. Love the crackers thing. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, oh, Mercedes, that was her name. An odd name for D&D, I know, but I, I based her off of a, a, a character that I'd seen in a, an old TV show that was kind of cuckoo, and her name was Mercedes. So, her name was Mercedes. Not after the car, because there's no cars here. Um, she's casting Detect Poison. And uh, people are starting to crowd in, right? Like, what? Poison? Let me see. You know, and the Templars are starting to kind of push people back and Artemis is starting to get jostled because Templars are pulling in and, and then people are like, what? Who did the poison? Who's trying to poison? And it starts to be, people start to freak out a little bit. You can imagine that. Hey, we just said someone's been poisoning your well. Right? Start to jostle around. Uh, let's see what I got here. More and more people are like, have I been poisoned? Heal me. You can see, we need heals. Please heal us. We've been poisoned. Even though people probably, the people talking have already been healed once or aren't even feeling any symptoms, you know. That's nothing. Not everybody's got the symptoms, right? Um, but everything starts going and Artemis starts getting crumbled around and things kind of go in slow motion. And all Artemis sees is Weston a few feet away in the crowd as well. And he turns, it's in her mind like slow motion, but he turns quickly and he looks at her, and she, he has a look of just real concern, if not almost fear on his face. And she looks at him, and she's like, confused, because why would Weston look like that? Imagine this is all slow motion, as I'm describing it to her. Suddenly a blade flashes right by her face, and she, she feels something wet splatter all up in her. And then she hears someone scream. Now, I'm not done for the night. But that's where I finished when I was playing with them. When we were playing that story, that's where we finished. And they didn't know what happened for a week. Because I also liked the cliffhanger. Artemis didn't know, did she get hit? Was I the one screaming? She didn't. I'm like, you'll find out next week. Drove her crazy. I love to do stuff like that to these kids. Weapons start coming out everywhere. The Templars start pulling them out. Um, the few knights are there. Everybody's pulling out blades. Nobody knows what's going on. But all Artemis can see is that everybody's blades are pointed at Quan. And he just screams, get back. And they do. All the Templars and everybody steps back away from Quan. On the ground in front of him 
is a woman holding on to the bleeding stump of her arm. Her hand just a few feet away. Mercedes screaming and cursing at Quan. She tries to get back up again and he just puts his blade right under her chin kind of thing like, if you move, I'm going to take your head off. All Artemis knows is suddenly Weston is there beside her as well as the Templars. They're confused. They're like, why did Quan attack this person? And he kicks the hand and looking down, Artemis and Weston can see that she has a ring but on the inside of the ring, the hand's laying there has a needle on it sticking out. Mercedes slowly gets to her feet. Quan stands back and lets her a little bit. She's sitting there, blood's just flowing off the stump of her hand. She just turns to, to Artemis, begins cursing her, says, it's not over yet. You're still going to lose. And as she's talking, her face begins to bubble a little bit. Like her skin's getting... And then blood and pus starts to come out. And it's almost like her face is made out of wax. And her body, like... And you could tell it's painful. And even though she's talking, she's like talking through like pain. And her whole body starts... And it starts like this real stinky, greenish funk starts coming off her. People step back even further. Even Quan at this point. And she literally begins to melt into this giant bubbling pile of pus to the point that even she can't stop. She's cursing through the whole time until she just can't do anything but scream until it finally just blah, 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 into the ground. And everybody's standing there shocked. And Artemis hears from beside her, Weston say, and so is the punishment for all those who fail the god of disease. Arsman looks at him and it kind of clicks. You fail your god and sometimes if it's not the nicest of gods, you have problems. So, while they were role-playing and checking out this place, there were times where different people were with her. Sometimes it was Seamus and this person, it was Quan as people were moving around. I was very careful to never put Mercedes and Weston together at any given time. And he didn't detect any evil until he did. When she was making a move and he walked within that circle and he's crowding and he turns and Quan sees the... Because the, Quan's always looking for protection. He's been extra careful since he failed with Miyasha. He's really hard on himself at this point. Failed with Miyasha. And he sees that hand reaching out through the crowd. And Quan's like a quick draw. You know? Quan's fast. And before he, he even realizes it, that his sword is out and that hand is gone. Of course, it's right next to Artemis, so she's got blood all sprayed up on her robe and her face. Miyasha's going to be furious. But... She discovers. So at this point, they're like, the Templars look at the, they're kind of standing there. The mayor comes running. They already had the head of the guard there. And Quan just steps up to the guard. And he goes, get everybody in their homes. And the guard, he just nods and starts yelling it out. And the Templar, everybody back to your houses now. Everybody home, off the streets. 
Miller, nothing to see here, because first of all, they're going to have to sanctify this. That's a nasty puddle of still stinky flesh in the middle of, next to the well. But they go ahead and they have to do all of that. And of course, this is mid to late day. So everybody's going to their homes. There's a curfew. No one's to be on the streets without like specific permission. Only the city guards and the Templars are allowed to be out. And of course, Artemis and party. And even some with this, when this goes out, the word goes out to the Knights of Serenity and the Knights of the Light. And now what was a protectional kind of garrison becomes a wall. No one goes in or out of this city until Artemis says so. I know midnight, it's scary. But yes, because she said it's not over yet. And Artemis doesn't think she's alone. So immediately Artemis' thoughts first start going, who in this town has not been around Weston? Maybe by accident? Doesn't necessarily mean they're evil, but who have we not got to actually see yet? And they basically make plans that after everybody's curfewed in, they return to the temple. She's got clean, she's got blood all over herself. The townsfolks are going to dig up all the dirt where the body was and take it out of there somewhere where it can be burned or something. You don't want to leave that dirt hanging around. Um, also, they're going to be blocking off the water, which is a common source of water for the city, but not the only. And not even, you'd say, the main one. There's rivers and stuff and things, and people have their own wells and some of their properties. So, well, this is a place where a lot of people, a fair amount of people, would get their water. Many of the people who've got sick probably never have. While the water may be the cause, it may not be. Artemis has a clue, but she doesn't have all the pieces yet. So that evening, they're going to go to sleep. And the next day, she's going to do some serious looking around this town. And she's going to arrange to make sure that they're going to find everyone Weston's not got to meet yet. Uh, Pena says, I've been so hung up on something you talked about a long time ago, wondering now if it was a seed for this adventure. Sorry, I'm talking so... No, please, never complain for throwing stuff out. If you're enjoying it and you're liking the story and your question, throw it out there. You got a, a thought. You might be right, you might be wrong. I love to hear them. If you're not sure you want to throw it in stream, direct message me after the stream. I'll, I'll read it. Send, I won't tell you if you're right or wrong. <laughs> you wait like everybody else, darn it. But uh, I love to hear people... If you pick up on clues that maybe they did or they didn't, it's possible. Um, but yes, it's uh, still about 15 minutes. May run a smidge long tonight. Not too long, we may. Depends on how this works. Uh, weird dream she had when they had all the gems gathered and had to do the trial. Oh, you remember that. You remember that. Excellent. Yes, they've all had... A trial. They all had their thing at a time. Intriguingly enough. Almost like they were prophecies. But not really, because they weren't prophets. But yes, I remember that. I remember all of it. <laughs> so now we're going to switch out. We're going to switch again. But a little bit differently this time. 
So I've been telling you, taking a couple days to do this, this person doing a couple days to do that, for this day, that day. Well, every, at the end of that day for Artemis was the seventh night. It was the seventh day or the end of the seventh day of the seventh night of the, since they had their bad dream. So I got a little bit of reading to do for you guys real quick. Mercy, back, it's still at the fort, you know, they're still chilling at the fort there. Um, uh, let's see here. Should we pull up the right thing here? Let me grab it here. Okay. Mercy is sitting at a table with her father. Today has been a good day, and they were enjoying a drink together. For the first time in her life, Mercy was at ease with her father. She did not feel the turmoil she had growing up. Her father spoke to her as an equal, and she could feel his pride whenever she was addressed by her soldiers, knights, or citizens. She was currently telling the tale of old poot and a certain butter dish. Sir Thomas was laughing so hard he was in tears. The butter dish, the very first, if, if you were not, weren't here for that, the very first episode of These Guys' Story, when they did the old poot adventure, um, Dandy was juggling a butter dish, and it slipped and landed on Darsh's head, and he's had butter rolling through his fur. The butter dish pops up all the time as a reference. Mercy reached to the small table beside her for her glass. Her fan held heavy, and she missed. She looked at her father, whose confused face seemed to shift and move, as the room around him did as well. Mercy tried to open her mouth to speak, but felt too tired to move. And then everything went black. Darsh is in his cabin, looking at several maps of the area. The Chimera is several days out of port on its way back to Kronayar. Recent events had Darsh frustrated. He didn't like leaving Darshtopia unprotected, but the Empire needed to be made aware of the situation. The mysterious nature of the attacks and the pirates themselves was also very troubling. It made Darsh angry that there weren't even any clues pointing him in a certain direction. Where's that Paxiwal chart? Darsh grumbled to himself. Darsh stood to go to his locker and quickly grabbed onto the table to keep from falling. Darsh chuckled at his own clumsiness. He usually doesn't lose his balance on ships. Darsh took a couple more steps on his wobbly legs and knew something was wrong. Ah, oh, shit, was all he could say as his eyes rolled back in his head and everything went black. Artemis was preparing for bed. The day had been long and stressful, and on top of that she missed Seraph and Draven, and longed to be back at home with them. She took comfort knowing that Shaman, Weston, Seamus, Weston, and Quan were taking turns guarding her room. They would allow no one but Miyasha to pass as she was sharing the room with her. Even any of the knights of the Light, or even of, of Serenity, uh, were barred without any escort from the three men. She turned to Miyasha, who'd been complaining about the current situation, about the temple's upkeep, about the state of the world in general, and just about anything else she could think of. Artemis could only smile at the large, dour woman, who always seemed to find a reason to grumble. Artemis wanted to tell her things would be fine, and she needed to be more positive. Artemis wanted to say that, but when she tried, it only came out as a garbled mumble. Miyasha turned to look at her. The last thing Artemis saw before everything went black was Miyasha's arms reaching out to her.
Dandy gently tied the wire to the window frame. She had set many traps in her lifetime and disarmed even more, but each time was its own adventure. She finished and turned to Michael with a big smile. Smiling back, he gathered their gear, preparing for their plan. Danny looked back at her handiwork. Now wait a minute, she thought. Why are there two wires? I never use two wires. How strange. Dandy reached out to check the second wire, but stopped quickly at the sight of a second hand following her first hand. Now I know I never had two right hands, she thought frustratingly. She turned to ask Michael how long she'd had two right hands and why he had never said anything sooner, but the room went all wobbly, and then everything went black. So, while everyone's out on their own adventure, there's still something connecting them. And that's what I read to them. And then this part I read to all of them. Everything is still dark, but you are once again self-aware. You feel cold stone beneath your back, and the air smells strange and stale, but it's breathable. They go to stand up. I say they because as they're standing up, they're shocked to realize they're in this room and they're all there together. The room would what they would expect in a castle, much like Serenity Cape, although the stones themselves are definitely not the design of Serenity. And Mercy knows every room of her castle. This is not one. In the center of the room is a metal chest and it's glowing. None of them knew what was in it. No one knew even how to open it. They only knew that whatever was in there was one of the most important things in the world, and they had to be it had to be protected. They even were tempted to look, but even Dandy was scared to see what was inside. Looking around the room, they see that there's one wooden door, one room, one way to exit. There's no sound coming from the other side of the door. They look around at each other. They see that they're all fully geared as they would be when they were adventuring together. Not wearing the clothes they were wearing when they passed out. They all had their weapons on. None of their friends or allies are there. It's just the four of them. And I give them a moment to speak. What was going on? Why are you here? Where is here? I don't know. What are you going on? Why did I have two hands? Look at Dandy for a minute. And there you go. And a bit of a conversation that I don't know. They don't know what's going on. Hey, Paul. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. They look around the room. Dandy goes to the door, uses her to detect noise. No sound from the door. Check the rooms. No secret doors. Artemis cast detect magic. The chest in the middle glows even brighter. Nothing else. Checking the door, they see it's not locked. They decide there's nothing else to do but to open the door. Doesn't appear trapped. And so Darsh opens the door. The door opens into chaos. People are rushing in all directions, and it takes you a moment to adjust as you try to take everything in. It's what I read to them. Before you is the main courtyard of Serenity Keep. Human and Minotaur soldiers line the battlements and rush about the courtyard preparing for some kind of an attack. 
Running around amongst them are Kender, dressed much the same as Dandy, also appearing to arm themselves. Soft chanting can be heard coming from the west, and looking you can see a group of elven clerics in the courtyard praying together, blessing all the warriors of the different races. They look around at each other, and they're like, these are minotaurs, these are clerics of the light and of healing, these are clerics just like us. But they don't recognize a single person. None of them look familiar. But Mercy knows these are her soldiers. Darsh knows these are his kinsmen. Dandy's like, I don't know why I have all these kinder here, but I know they're mine. And Artemis knows those are true clerics. They're looking around a bit, trying to see what's happening, if they can see anything. While they know it's Serenity Keep, it feels different. The layout's not exactly the same. The room they walked out of, the door behind them, that's normally where the grand door would be to enter into the main hall. But now it's just that wooden door, and that feels odd. Suddenly, a loud horn can be heard from the battlements. Everyone from all around stops what they are doing and turn to look at the main gate. Then all at once, they turn and head to their battle stations. Hello, Patsy. Our heroes, too, know that battle has been called. A warning has been made, and the time has come, though the time for what, they're not quite sure. They also decide to head to the battlements, up to the edge of the gate, to look outside the gates, because the gate's closed, obviously. As they're heading up the stairs, each one of them is stopped by what appears to be the captain or head of their individual race or force. Each one advises their particular person, the mentors, the Darsh, the Kendra, the Dandy, so on, that the enemy has been sighted and each one refers to them as my lord. Our heroes again continue up the stairs to the battlement. Looking over the walls, you are surprised to see that you are in the center of a large valley, not the lands of serenity, not a place you've ever seen before. In the distance, you can see the approaching army. Each of them is a draconic creature, much like a draconian, but larger. Mixed within their ranks are larger versions with four legs, like a draconic centaur. There are thousands of them coming from all directions, and an, 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 in, an unending sea of evil. You know in your heart why they have come and what they want, and you know that no matter what, you cannot let them have it. Battle begins, and it's literally a battle. It was many rounds. Each one at times having to command forces of their own race or kind. Um, and when I say race, I mean it's male and females of both. Kender, Minotaur. But each one appears to be listening to Kender, listen to Dandy as if that's their leader. Each one has to call out their strategies and their commands. And they had to work together to defend the keep from this just sea. And they had all the stuff you'd expect. They had ballista, and they had bowmen on the top shooting down. They had the cauldrons of, you know, hot water and lava and stuff you'd pour down. They had all the type of defenses Serenity would have. In fact, almost double or triple what Serenity really had. But for every one they did, it just felt like everything was still coming over and over again. And the fight goes nonstop. And, and then they're climbing over the walls. 
and Darsh and Dandy, Mercy and Artemis, all of them, even Artemis is in melee combat, casting spells, drinking potions, using their magic items that they have, anything they can to try to keep everything away from that door. Come on, Patchy. Come here, baby. Sit right there. Thank you. The fight seems to go on forever. There's no sun or moon or stars. The sky doesn't seem to change. It's just the grayest blur. There's no sense of time, although it feels again like forever. And all they know is they're getting more and more tired. They're fighting. And they're fighting. And they're getting weaker. They're using up their magic items and potions. Artemis is run, starting to run low on spells. It seems like not just hours, but potentially days that this battle is going on. But they feel like they're doing well. For all of it, none of these things are making it to the courtyard. Nothing's getting close to that door. Even there's times they had to fall back a bit with certain forces and give commands strategically. Minotaur's over there, Kender over here, use, your, use these skills. Clerics, heal these people. Heal Darsh, heal this, the other clerics helping. One thing, I let them fight as long as they did. There was a group of clerics throwing heels wherever Artemis would tell them to. And the battle raged. And then eventually, I said, it takes a few minutes for you to realize the Dracos are coming less and less frequently. After forever, it seems that the waves of enemies finally stops. All the remaining soldiers stand looking outwards on the battlements. They begin climbing up the stairs. And they look, and they realize that everybody's looking in one direction. But the keep they've been fighting this whole time, protecting from every direction. They've been running around this thing, fighting and defending. Because I would say, a wave of things are coming this direction. I send the Minotaurs and the humans over there, and Mercy will go help them. Darsh will run over here. There was a bunch of that kind of stuff that went on. It was a very long battle. Standing on the battlements, looking in the direction of everyone else, they can see a, the field is just littered with bodies. It is then that you can sense it is coming. Your heart fills with dread as you can feel waves of pure evil wash over you. You can see the great dragon coming from the south. How you know it's the south, you have no idea, but it is. It is black, but much blacker than a normal black dragon. Black more as if there's a, the absence of light. It is massive, Though not as large as the Draculich you fought in the other world, for some reason this dragon is much more frightening. The sea of Dracos are gone now, and looking around you find yourself alone as well. All of your allies are gone. The bodies of the dead, of all sides, have disappeared. Your will is strong, says the great beast, much stronger than I'd anticipated. Still you only delay the inevitable. You will give me what I want, one way or another. You cannot fight me forever. I gave them a moment to speak. A blacker than the blackest black. Just a little bit blacker than black, than that, Jim. 
So imagine you're blacker than the blackest black, and then one level blacker. <laughs> I'm going to read a comment here that I... This is just... This is me. This is a DM note. Because the DM notes... I have to say this. It's a minor interruption here. The DM notes are me writing to me in the future. This is the idea I have. Don't forget this, stupid. There's times I put that in there. Don't forget to mention this, stupid. You know what I mean? But it's me literally talking to me the way I would talk to me. So, I write bullet points. Allow PCs to be all tough. Because I know them. And of course, they, you will not have what you want. We will, you know, that kind of, I know they're going to do it and they do. And then the dragon attacks. And the battle rages. And then in the I have beats the shit out of the PCs. <laughs> it's a powerful dragon. The fight goes, and sure enough, most of the stuff is gone, but even then, Artemis is casting spells she knows she shouldn't ha still have the ability to do. Darsh is throwing javelins. He's like, I, there's no way I had 100 javelins. This is the 100th javelin I've thrown. Dandy's whipping magical dagger after magical dagger after magical dagger. She only has five of them. Where are all these daggers? But they know they're still fighting. But no matter, even though they have, seem to have these infinite ammo, they're losing. And they're taking serious damage each round. When suddenly, about that time, out of the corner of his eye, Darsh sees a blue flash. Daring a glance, he can see a large metal shield lying on the ground. It appears to be one of the shields the large Dracos carried, but it did not disappear like everything else. In its center glows a blue rune, unlike anything he's ever seen. Interesting moment for a sub. <laughs> This'll take a minute. It's catching up the subs from the last three hours. Okay, just two. It does that sometimes. Um... Where was I? Uh, the shield is large and much too big for a normal person to carry. Darsh abandons the line and runs and grabs it. Takes all of his strength to pick it up. But once it's in his arm, it feels like it was meant to be there. Not only does it now grow a brighter blue, but as it runs forward, he runs back into the battle line, he feels it emanating a field of protection. And now some of the breath weapons and things coming out from the Black Dragon are stopped before they reach his friends. The dragon gets angry. And anytime the dragon attacks the shield specifically, the dragon seems to take more damage than anyone who's wielding it. Suddenly, Mercy can hear a sound from her side. Looking over, she can see that a weapons rack has fallen over. Several spears and polearms seem to fall out of it. And the only weapon left standing is a single footman's lance. From its head, Mercy can see a glowing blue rune. She yells this out to the friends. Darsh tells her to go get it. And she does. She rushes over. Dragon runs over to try to stop. But she grabs the spear and she hits the dragon. And the dragon screams in pain. The spear like it's burning it at every touch. Darsh's shield and her spear, they begin to drive the dragon back.
Finally, the dragon is at a point it cannot harm them anymore and is only taking damage by its own attacks. It rises into the air, and from high above you, it says, This is not over. You only buy yourself time. You will give it to me. And with that, the dragon turns and flies off, disappearing in the distance. They're left there, standing alone. Just, just the four of them. There are no bodies. There's nothing else. The, arm, the, the shield and the spear cease their glow, dropping to the ground. They fade like everything else, and now they stand alone in the courtyard. And all there is is that door. And turning, they return to it, and they're nervous. They look at each other, and they decide there's nowhere else to go. So they open the door. Mercy is in bed. Her father and Seth, the knight that was accompanying her on this trip, are there, and they tell her that she's been unconscious for eight hours. Even though she's been unconscious for eight hours, she feels like she hasn't slept in days. She feels weak. Not only that, while she was unconscious, a messenger had arrived just an hour ago, saying that there had been an attack at the quarry. Seth and Sir Edwin were just getting ready to leave, her, her there in the bed under the protection of the few guards that are there. All that they know is from the notes is that creatures had come out of the mine. The, run, the runner that brought it says he doesn't know what kind or what it was. He was just told to come get mercy immediately because the quarry knew where they were going. They can make it, though they're going to have to push it hard. They tell mercy to stay, but mercy's like, hell no. It doesn't matter how tired I am. And she, makes, she armors up and gets on her horse. Her and her father and Seth and the guards she's brought with her race back towards the quarry. Darsh will awaken in bed. Jorn and Morik are in the room. Jorn is his assistant who came on the trip with him. And Morik is the cleric. It's a cleric of the god of war that's on Darsh's ship. And I can't remember if I told you guys that or not. But he's been there as well. He's been told that he's been unconscious for eight hours. And just like Mercy, he's exhausted. The ship is still several days out of Kronayar, and Mark will say that Darsh was somehow bespelled. Nothing he could cast, nothing that he tried to do, was able to break the spell on Darsh. Whatever it was had him completely bungled down. But as soon as he awoken, there was no residue of the magic again. Dandy awakens in the bed in their hotel room. Michael clearly relieved when she opens her eyes. She'd been unconscious for eight hours, though she was incredibly exhausted. Michael insists that she sleeps through the rest of the day. Now he'll be bringing food and drinks up. Sleep the rest of the day. We're going to skip our plan because now it's morning and we'll try sneaking around the city tomorrow night. I'll get you food and drink. You stay here. I'll tell everybody you're just feeling a little unwell. Artemis awakens in a bed with Miyasha and everyone around her freaked out. You can imagine. She wakes up and standing there is Artemis, or saying there's Miyasha, Seamus, Quan, Weston, even one of the Knights of the Light, Dante, is there. Overwhelmingly relieved to see her open her eyes. She's been asleep for eight hours, though she feels incredibly tired. Everyone insists that she stay in bed and rest. Artemis wants to fight back, but when she tries, she can barely stand. 
And they say, we're going to guard this room. And again, Miyasha says, I could tell with spells you were somehow in spell, but I had no way to break it. But now I sense nothing. And Weston says that for the entire time that she was unconscious, he could sense an evil, but it was from very far away. Partway through the day, while she was asleep, another wave had hit the town and more people had begun getting sick again. Miyasha was about to start healing them when Artemis finally woke up. Artemis is going to do her best to try, wants to help as well, but they insist she stay in bed and get some rest. And when she feels up to it, they'll continue. And that's where we're going to stop for today. This is the first day since they had a dream. I want to remember that number. So, I'd like to thank everybody for coming to my story today. Uh, hopefully, you found it the slightest bit interesting. I know it might be a bit jarring bouncing from person to person, but I promise it matters. Everybody gets their chance, and yet something seems to always bring crap together. I love that. Um, but I like how this is working. I like how it's coming out. Actually, I, I'm really happy with the way it's coming across telling of the story as well. I was concerned it may not relay as well as some of the other stuff that I've told, but I feel like it's coming across okay. So hopefully you guys are liking as well. I'd love to hear any feedback you have. If you do, feel free to throw it down in the comments, whether you're watching this today or two years from now. I do keep up on this. The Merge World contents, uh, co comments are probably the ones I street look at the most often there's not many of them but i like to check because youtube doesn't always tell me when somebody leaves a comment so i check them regularly um, but thank you so much for coming by and letting me tell my tale um, we'll be back again next thursday so a week from today 8 p.m eastern standard time because merge worlds is a every day of the week thing now and i'm excited to get to share the story more often uh, if you liked the story today, you had a good time, and you don't mind, please be sure to click that like button. If you're listening to this two years from now, please be sure to click that like button. And if you've just found us for the first time, please be sure to hit subscribe. That way you can come back and hang out with us on all of our adventures. Um, I would also like to say, if you'd like to join our Discord channel and talk about Merged Worlds again, today or two years from now, uh, just go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a link at the top that'll take you right in there. We have a thread specifically designed for Merged Worlds. If you want to chat about that, ask questions. I do my best to answer any questions I have as long as it's not going to spoil the story. Um, so I'm, I'm, I keep an eye on that as well. We'd love, And we talk about lots of other stuff too. We got the new Pets channel where everybody's posting pictures of their kitties and such of that. And uh, that seems to be going pretty well. People seem to be enjoying that. So lots of their pets have pictures. I think we had a snake pop up today. Shadowcast shared pictures of her snake. So she got a lot of uh, lizards and snakes. Shadow does. You should ask to see more of them. She will share them with you. Um, we also have a membership program. If you'd like to get some cool perks, it's a lot like a Twitch sub. Uh, only cheaper. It's $2.99 a month. Uh, gives you access to our members-only Minecraft server. Members-only... Um, drawing a blank. Uh, members-only streams. Um, I'm thinking of trying to do something special members that's D&D &D based. That may not be actually playing D&D, &D, 
but be something D&D based, whether a special side story that I designed just for, for members as a, as a special members thing. I'm not sure yet. I'm floating around some ideas. I'd like to bring a, a D&D theme or, or D&D or Merge Worlds themed perk for members. It's the one thing I don't have yet. So looking into some options there as well. Uh, but if you're interested, just click the join button on my YouTube channel. It doesn't sign you up. It just takes you into the page where you can learn all the cool stuff you'll get. And if you'd like to, you can continue from there. It's a great way to support the channel if you'd like, as well as you can donate to the channel. Um, there's a link in the bottom of all my stories, videos, and streams if you'd like to make a donation via PayPal, credit card, debit card. You are never required to, but uh, it is always appreciated if it's something you'd like to do. Definitely helps support the channel, and I do my best to try to put all of that back into the channel one way or another. Uh, so thank you all for letting me tell my tale. Special thank you to the members for being the support that you are, as well as all the wonderful folks who've been donating lately. Again, you guys are what are let me take this giant leap into doing this full time, and I appreciate it. And an extra special thank you to all of my moderators for all of the hard work that they do. But thank you for joining me with Merge Worlds. I hope you're enjoying this story so far. Um, and I look forward to chatting with you more about it next week. So you all have yourselves a wonderful evening. And we will see you all again very, very soon. You guys have yourselves a great night.